0: Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and my bulldog Rodney is beside me as usual. The month of March is dedicated to Love Your Lawyer Month on the show, because believe it or not, folks, lawyers need love too. And frankly, we're the Rodney Dangerfields of the professional world when it comes to the love and respect department, because frankly... Lawyers don't get much respect. That's all going to change this month because during Love Your Lawyer Month, we're going to have some top lawyers on to talk about why they love being a lawyer. And today, I am pleased to be joined by my friend and top lawyer, Mark Bryant from the Bryant Law Center in Paducah, Kentucky, as Mark shares some great stories about his legal career and provides some great insight and perspective into the legal profession. If you're from my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, you know the name Mark Bryant. Mark has been practicing law in Paducah since graduating from law school at the University of Kentucky in 1973, and he is one of the most successful and respected attorneys, not only in the Paducah area, but the entire state of Kentucky and the country. Mark is the founder of the Bryant Law Center in Paducah, and he and his firm's team of lawyers focus on personal injury matters, workers' compensation claims, criminal defense, and family law, with family law being divorce and child custody matters. Mark and his colleagues at Bryant Law Center have received the highest ratings in top legal publications such as Martindale, Hubble, Super Lawyers, and the U.S. News and World Report's Best Lawyers and Law Firm Rates. And Mark is also a member of the prestigious Million Dollar Advocates Forum, which is awarded to the country's best personal injury lawyers. Besides being my friend, Mark is also a former boss of mine, and I interned with his law firm after my second year of law school before moving to Miami after graduation. So it's great to have him on the show and great to get caught up after all of these years. And it's also great to have him kick off Love Your Lawyer Month. You can learn more about Mark's practice at Bryant Law Center at www.bryantpsc.com or just do a Google search for the Bryant Law Center and it'll come up right away. So please welcome my friend Mark Bryant to Live in the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Ben, thank you so much for inviting me. I am humbled by it and honored by it. My wife, Sue, did tell me before I got on here today, don't brag too much. And uh, it kind of reminded me, I had a friend that was president of the University of Kentucky, Dr. Otis Singletary, who told me one time, always be humble no matter how arrogant you are. So that is good good words to live by. But you know, when you talk about lawyers not getting any respect and, and lawyers need for love, one day I was on television uh, at a local uh, WPSD NBC affiliate in Paducah, and some woman called me from Union City, Tennessee, and uh, I asked her how she happened to call me, and she said because I've seen you on television before, and for a lawyer, you seem like a pretty nice guy, and <laughs> so it, it is it has served me well. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice Bill Graves told me one time, he said, you know, you have developed a huge practice and a lot of it is just because you're a nice guy. So I try to be. it's worked out real well.
0: Well, being a nice guy goes a long way a lot of times, especially in today's world. Yeah. So, um, you know, what's funny before we kind of start talking, you mentioned Supreme Court Justice Bill Graves. I have a great uncle named Bill Graves, who is the judge executive for many years in Ballard County. So sometimes there would be confusion between the The judge Bill Graves and the county judge B- Bill Graves. So they're like, yeah, you're married, uh, you're related to the the judge. I'm like, well, the we one in Ballard County. So that's kind of yeah. funny. And I knew both of yeah. them obviously. Sure. Sir. Well, before we start talking about why you love being a lawyer, one thing that we both share is a love for our hometown of Paducah, Kentucky. So why is Paducah such a great place to grow up and live and even visit?
1: Ben, Paducah, Kentucky is a small City in Western Kentucky, located between Nashville, Tennessee, and St. Louis, Missouri. In fact, it's the largest community between Nashville and St. Louis. The Ohio and Tennessee rivers meet at the foot of Broadway in Paducah, and it is a beautiful little river town of 25,000 people in a county of about 75,000. Uh, people get along really well there. Uh, integration went off without a hitch in 1965, and the races do continue to get along well. Is a huge medical center, has a great art center and lots of superb local restaurants and a downtown that was built in the 1800s and given awards by Southern Living, Architectural Digest, Condé Nast Traveler, and many more. The the people in Paducah are absolutely the best. I love Paducah.
0: Yeah, I know. I love it, too. And, you know, the thing about Paducah, is It has a little bit to offer for anybody. It's, it is a small town, but like you mentioned, um, we offer a lot of big town stuff, too. Like the medical profession is huge there. Uh, the school systems are good. So it's like if you want to raise a family there, it's good for the sports and the school. And, you know, we've got a lot of technology going on there. And, of course, uh, a rather robust legal practice. There are a lot of lawyers in Paducah now. Oh, yeah, there
1: sure are a lot of lawyers. I mean, you know, it's like every time a Greyhound bus comes to town, there's a new lawyer getting off. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No. So, well, it's funny. um, I I picked you to kick off Love Your Lawyer Month because, believe it or not, you were actually the first lawyer I ever met in person. When you spoke at Career Day at Reedland Middle School when I was in the seventh grade, um, my science teacher that year was Carolyn Tucker. And she was she was a, a very big personality. So she coordinated um, the career day and um, she had the lawyer. And, of course, that was a time of L.A. law and Harry Hamlin. And I was like, man, you know, because you came in and um, you remind me of Harry Hamlin because you were a prosecutor and you had great hair and all that. I was like, man, it's like a requirement to be a lawyer to have great hair. So so what inspired you to become a lawyer?
1: Well, Ben, uh, that's an interesting question. My dad uh, was a World War II veteran and a safety engineer at uh, TVA. Uh, and uh, my, uh, he served in the U.S. Army in World War II in the China-Burma-India Theater and flew the hump, the Himalaya Mountains, in a B-24 26 times. My dad was a hell of a man. My mother was a school teacher who didn't like lawyers. <laughs> my uncle, Albert Jones, who was 20 years my senior, became a lawyer and an FBI agent chasing a mob in Las Vegas, And then he decided he wanted to come back to Paducah. He missed home, and he was elected Conwell's attorney in Paducah in 1964. So Albert encouraged me to go to law school. He told me, if you don't like working for somebody, you can always strike out on your own. So I thought, well, that's pretty good advice. Mm -hmm. And I have practiced law and lived in Paducah my entire career because I can because of the internet and associating with big-time lawyers I've met through the American Trial Lawyers and the Democratic Attorney General's Association, I've moved my practice out of Paducah and into California, New York City, Delaware, Knoxville, Chicago, Charleston, West Virginia, and points beyond, actually from one edge of the continent to the other. But there is no place like home. And like I said, I live in Paducah, Kentucky, and practice law there, too, because I can't. Some uh, kind of an interesting point, though. I've been surprised to learn from a lot of very successful lawyers I associate with across America how many lawyers are Eagle Scouts whose mother was was a school teacher. And I don't know why that is, but uh, there's an awful lot of them that have very, been very successful They have the same pedigree I've got.
0: You know, it's interesting? My mom was a school teacher. Yeah, I, I didn't make yeah. I didn't make it the Eagle Scout. I was I devoted uh, I I was doing Boy Scouts for a while and then I focused more on sports, but, uh, I guess, you know, when your mom's a teacher, you're focused on academics and doing really well and, uh, kind of the perfectionist attitude, which is something that's a quality for a lot of lawyers. A lot of lawyers are perfectionists. And it's interesting. Um, the Kentucky bar association had a seminar on dealing with perfectionism and, uh, how sometimes it's a good thing. and Sometimes it's a bad thing, but, um, well, talk about the practice of law in Paducah because you know it is a small town but you got a lot of lawyers there
1: I don't know how many lawyers there are in Paducah but there are upwards of 300 possibly more in a small community like that Wow and l- lawyers uh, you know there are very few that really make a lot of money uh, mm-hmm. at least in our community uh, and there are some lawyers that I, I mean I'm I'm guessing and they'd make the minimum wage, but I wouldn't bet on it because it's, it's a, it is a dog-eat-dog world out there, totally different than it was when I first started practicing law. Right. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I have a friend that was a former dean of the University of Kentucky College of Law, and I saw him a couple of years ago. I'm on the visiting committee for the U.K. College of Law. And he, he's out in California now and he flew in for his CLE and he said, lawyers are not doing very well in Kentucky. And I said, why do you think that? And he said, because whenever I fly in for CLE, I look in the parking lot and see how many cars there are out there that are nice cars. And he said, you might see one or two BMWs, Mercedes, uh, and Lexus, but you don't see very many. And, yeah. uh, I thought it was kind of interesting, uh, but, I mean, you know, it, it, it's like anything else, Ben. I mean, there's some people who are going to rise to the top and do real well, and there's others that's just not going to happen with. So it's, yeah. a, it's a tough profession.
0: You know, it's interesting because um, sometimes I'll talk to students about career day, like what you did with, with me. And I tell people now, if you want to go to law school, I think you have to be more than just a lawyer. You, you really have to be a business advisor, and so I tell people, look, if you're going to go to law school, you should also do that joint MBA program because that gives you an opportunity to be a lawyer, but also be a business consultant or go into business for your own. Because I know a lot of lawyers who, like myself, have gone in-house or they are business people. You mentioned a friend of yours before we got on the podcast who became a home builder in Arizona. And you can use your legal skills to be also very, very successful in business. And I, I think That's a very interesting thing. Well, let's talk about how you started your career. Um, After you finished law school at UK, you went to work for the McCracken County Commonwealth Attorney's Office here in Paducah as a criminal prosecutor. And you became a prominent lawyer right away. So talk about some of your favorite memories of working with the Commonwealth Attorney's Office um, and who are some of your mentors. I forgot to mention you were also our Commonwealth Attorney for several years and extremely highly regarded.
1: Ben, I gotta tell you, I had a great time uh, as Commonwealth Attorney from McCracken County. I loved it, and I would probably be still be there, but for the fact that I, I had a goal, and my goal was for my all of my children to complete their education without having any debt. And mm-hmm. I knew I couldn't do that on a Commonwealth Attorney's salary, so uh, I spent uh, from from uh, 1974 uh, to 1990 uh, in the Commonwealth Attorney's office. And then my wife, one day, she said to me, she said, um, what are you going to do when you grow up? And she, she is one of the, the great believer in my being perfect. And uh, so I fight it tooth and nail, Ben. But anyhow, she was right. And at that, uh, so I decided that uh, actually I actually laughed and I told her "I said, you know, I think I'll open a Dairy Queen. And she said, open a Dairy Queen. Why don't you do something you know? And I said, I don't like lawyers. And I didn't back then. And now I love lawyers. But what I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis was defense counsel. And, you know, they represent just vile people. And they lied a lot. And I understand why they did to try and help their clients. But I really did not like lawyers at that time in my life. And now that I've gotten out into practice for another 30 something years, I found that lawyers are as a whole, really honorable people and good people and don't lie very often. And, uh, so, uh, anyhow, I really do like that, but let me kind of talk to you, um, When I got out of law school, I went to work for a former state senator named Joe Grace, a very colorful and smart lawyer. Some lawyers were jealous of Joe's success and said he got his law out of the racing farms. And Joe taught me a lot about things, but I particularly remember one that is absolutely true. He said, if you don't toot your own horn, ain't nobody else going to do it for you. Then... My Uncle Albert Jones got a federal grant for a full-time assistant Commonwealth's attorney and he offered it to me. I took the job and in 1974 I was paid twenty-four thousand dollars as his first assistant. And because it was federal money, it was more than Albert, the Commonwealth's attorney, was paid by the state of Kentucky as Commonwealth's attorney. Oh my God. So that was yeah, really. Yeah, he he was he was not happy about that. <laughs> but anyhow. So I was making more money on the federal grant than he was as kind of lost attorney. But that was 74. And I loved being there and learning to try cases from a master trial lawyer and an awesome storyteller. Albert prided himself on his one loss record and would often hold up a file and say to me, quote, if we don't get more evidence in this case, it looks like you're going to have to try it. And he'd laugh and I'd laugh and I'd have to try it, but it helped his one loss record. Uh, and in 1978, a friend of mine was governor of Kentucky. I was Julian Carroll. He was from Paducah and I know Julian really well. Mm-hmm. And Albert told me he wanted to be the United States attorney for the Western District of Kentucky because Jimmy Carter had just been elected president. So I called my friend, the governor of Kentucky, and asked if he would ask President Carter to nominate Albert for that position, which mm-hmm. he did. So I told Albert about it, and before he had told his wife anything about it, he got the call from the White House that he was going to be nominated for Senate confirmation, and he was sweating blood when he went home to tell Lou. He did take the job and asked me to go to Louisville and be his first assistant. I told him no. I was married and had three small children. You ask about other people who mentored me uh, when I was Conwell's attorney, and one of them that was so important to me was a man named Joe Freeland who was number one in his law school class at the University of Kentucky, and the number two in that class uh, was Bert T. Combs, who became governor of Kentucky and the chief judge of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then I had uh, Judge Lloyd Emery, uh, who also mentored me, and Judge Emery was a Vanderbilt graduate who started a nursing program at the local community college, and on top of that, uh, Judge Emery um, had a Ph.D. in nursing and then a law degree. And he was just a very, really brilliant guy. And I uh, tried lots and lots of cases in front of Judge Emery and learned a whole lot from
0: him. Yeah. No, that's a really great story. Um, I want to talk about Albert a little bit more because he was really a, an icon for Paducah. I mean, he was not only a top lawyer, but he was a mayor for a long time. And of course, related to you, and he recently passed away. So, um, can you talk about Albert and his contributions to Paducah? Because they're just so outstanding. I think he deserves a little bit of time here as far as living the dream.
1: Yeah, Ben, thanks for asking. Albert Jones was a great guy. He, uh, uh, Albert was from Greek heritage. And of course, I am too. And when Albert was little, my uh, Albert really was my first. Cousin once removed, but I always called him Uncle Albert. Uh, my mother and her three sisters raised Albert Jones because when he was a child, his father, had a. Or he was a Greek man and a, an American citizen. Uh, and Uncle Albert raised James Albert, but he really needs some help. And so my mother and her sisters raised him. And uh, so I've never known a day without Albert Jones being around until... Uh, February the, the uh, 10th of this year, and I was the last person that uh, that uh, talked to Albert, and shortly after that, he died. But Albert was a great man. He was an uh, all-state football player at Tillman High School. He ran the track uh, team, and, and they won the state championship that year. Uh, he was anchor on the relay team. Uh, Bear Bryant offered him a scholarship to play uh, football at the University of Kentucky. Uh, and then Albert decided he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be a lawyer. And so he went to law school Um, right before he did that. He had to go to Korea uh, for, you know, with the Korean, uh, Korean conflict, Korean war. So he was in the military for a couple of years. And then uh, when he graduated from law school, he joined the FBI and he went out to Vegas. And every day he wore a gray suit and a gray hat. And he followed the mob around and he'd report back uh, to his boss and his boss was the guy that was, became Deep Throat in the Nixon. Oh, no, really? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, anyhow, that's who Albert would report to. And Albert was just a classic guy. P- Everybody loved him. He was just uh, fun to be around. He was smart as a whip. And so he decided that he wanted to come home from Vegas. And he did. And he ran for uh, Commonwealth's attorney against an incumbent. And it was quite the landslide. I think he won by 86 votes. And uh, but anyhow, he became Conwell's attorney and he was that from uh, eight from 64 to uh, 80 uh, to 78. And then he moved to Louisville and he was the only U.S. attorney I've ever heard of that lived in an Airstream trailer uh, because he wanted to find out first he liked Louisville enough to buy a house. And so he did. Yeah, no kidding. But he did. And he and Lou moved up to Louisville. And uh, they stayed up there. And Albert's the last U.S. attorney that I'm aware of that tried a case uh, in federal court uh, as a prosecutor, because now it's more of a management position, and not very many of. them. I don't even know any of that tried a case anymore. But Albert did, right? And he uh, he tried a guy that ripped off Elvis Presley's estate uh, uh, of, of a uh, some kind of a. Uh, a jet plane that Elvis owned, and mm-hmm. uh, so anyhow, yeah, it was just kind of funny and fun. And and uh, but then Albert decided that he'd had enough U.S. Attorney's office, and he came home and practiced law for just a little bit in Paducah. And um, he decided that he wanted to do something else, so he ran for the General Assembly. And when he was in the General Assembly, he became the Senate, uh, the, the House Majority uh, Whip in the Senate, which pushed all the legislation through. His big area was um, uh, uh, was taking care of education in Kentucky, which has always been a terrible problem for our state because we don't have enough money to, to spend. And so he really, he really worked hard on that. And then um, the uh, uh, anyhow, so he was in the General Assembly for six years and he came back home to practice law again. And this time when he came back home, he got kind of bored with that and decided uh, that he wanted to run for mayor. And once mm-hmm. again, he ran against the incumbent. It was Joe Varese, uh, wasn't it? No, it was um, oh, Geraldine, Montgomery. Yeah, Geraldine Montgomery. Montgomery. Yeah, Geraldine Montgomery. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he beat her um, uh, for mayor and he stayed uh, he stayed as mayor uh, for in excess of five years. And, uh, during that time, Bill Clinton was president and I don't know why, but he and he and Albert, uh, they, they got to where they were palling around, you know, they meet in Louisville at conferences and things. And, uh, mm-hmm. Clinton liked Albert and Albert liked Clinton. So just, mm-hmm. it was just kind of funny and fun. And then, uh, anyhow, Albert finally, um, uh, he, when he got out of the mayor's office, he lived there at the corner of 28th and Broadway in Paducah, had an awesome home right there in, and in in the city of paducah mm-hmm. and after mayor he bought uh, a really nice home and 10 acres out in lone oak and i said albert why did you move from the city of paducah to lone oak and he said for lower taxes <laughs> which i just <laughs> thought was <laughs> hilarious and and so albert and uh anyhow albert's been a huge influence on my life and he uh, he will remain that way for the rest of my life and on my kids too because you know i've got if it weren't for me um I doubt that my, my niece would be a lawyer and she graduated from uh, LSU as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter, Jennifer, is a lawyer. And I think that that's why um, uh, she is. And my son, David, is a lawyer mm-hmm. uh, in Louisville. And I really do believe, had it not been for Albert, that might that might not ha- have happened for any of us.
0: Right. Well, that's kind of with me, too, because like i met. At- met you and of course at that time like I said LA law was popular and it's like you know you're either wanting to be a doctor or a lawyer I'm like well I don't want to deal with a bunch of sick people so I'll be a lawyer <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um so I my mentors early on I worked at the Whitlow law firm for several years as an intern so I got to work with like Mark Whitlow and Dick Roberts and Gary House and Rick Straub I mean, make sure I don't miss anybody Chris Hudson Ron Cupper. Uh, Of course, then I also met Tom Osborne, who that's how I ended up working at your firm. And Tom was a tremendous uh, litigator, is a tremendous litigator. He's still around. And of course, he worked with you. And so he was a very big mentor to me. And I think, you know, in any career, having mentors is very important. So you can learn from their experience and ask questions and kind of have someone to guide you along the way. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah. well, you've had
1: some good ones. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's funny. You mentioned Dick Roberts because Dick retired a few years ago and, and these trained own cases that we'll talk about shortly, I'm guessing, uh, I was, I was out of state so much on those cases. And Dick was like the ethic guru. He wrote ethics opinions, the bar association. He quit doing that and he retired. So one day I said, Dick, how's retirement going? And he said, I just hate it. And I said, well, i got plenty of stuff for you to do if you'd like to do it. And Dick came down there and, and, uh, did research for me and gave uh, gave all our lawyers good advice for several years. He was fantastic, and now oh man, he's yeah, great. He, yeah, yeah, he was. He is a really good guy.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, so after leaving the Commonwealth Attorney's Office in 1990, he started the Bryant Law Center, which I think at that time it was um, Bryant Bryant Couts or Bryant Couts and Jones, but eventually it became the Bryant Law Center.
2: Yeah, Bryant Couts, and, and yeah. it's
0: been around for 30 years, and like I mentioned earlier, it's highly regarded on a national level, and. And several of the lawyers there, like Kevin Shannon and um, Emily Rourke, they've been there for many years because they were there when I interned. So why has Bryant Law Center and its lawyers been so successful?
1: Well, that's a really good question, Ben. And I have to tell you, we were not an overnight success. I mean, it it takes a long time to, uh, to do what we have done. But one reason started out when I was a child and I was a voracious reader and I read the biography of Andrew Carnegie. He taught me to hire the smartest people you can possibly afford, and I took that to heart. I've always known that the president of General Motors isn't necessarily the smartest engineer they have, but it's the person most skilled in getting others to work towards a unified goal. At our law firm, we have multiple goals. Our first one is is to help as many people as we can. Next is to make the Bryant Law Center the best place to work. Another is to help our community and state to thrive and to give to charities that help people who can't help themselves. We have been very successful, but it didn't happen overnight. It has come in fits and starts. And one reason we've been so fortunate in our success is because no one ever quits. I've been able to hire the smartest people and not just lawyers. A perfect example is my investigator, Jim Malone. He could be the smartest lawyer around, but instead became an investigative reporter for the Courier Journal. He has a huge IQ and a master's in journalism. Part of Jim's job every day is to find out who I want to sue next, and he is fantastic at that. Kevin Shannon is one of my law partners and has been with me for 24 years. He is brilliant and could just as easily have been a Harvard Law School professor. Emily Rourke is my other law partner, and she has been with me for 21 years. Emily is also brilliant, and she works around the clock. Uh, Emily works around the clock. Uh, A type A personality with a huge desire to succeed. Uh, I have a friend named Joe Rice, who's an attorney in South Carolina, who has been enormously successful. I asked him one day why I always had a guy named Fred with him when he traveled, and he said it's important to take somebody smarter than you on trips and to meeting with you. <laughs> and I do that very same thing. If it's a products liability case or a PI case, uh, I take Kevin Shannon with me. If it's a train derailment or a mass torts case, I take Emily Lark with me. Or a death penalty murder case, I take Emily too because she is fantastic in that. Another friend of mine that I play golf with regularly in Florida is a man named Art Ryan of New York City and Vero Beach, Florida, and he is a former president of the Chase Manhattan Bank. He told wow. me that he had some 25,000 employees, uh, and he told me that, the, that years ago that his secret to success was keeping employees long term, and that is mm-hmm. what I've managed to do, too. So that's one of the reasons. Years ago, Ben, I had a partner that you would have known that I had to uh, uh, split uh, our relationship. And I owed him $1.2 million that I just did not have. And I'll never forget, I got down on my knees that night and I told the good Lord I didn't know what I was doing and I need some help. And the very next day, I got a call from Yvonne Hoseapple. Asking for a job. Well, Yvonne Holzapfel is a great family friend, and she is a godmother to my children, and she is a, she was educated as an accountant, and she owned a huge hotel in Paducah called the Executive Inn, and she had sold it for millions of dollars. And uh, sure enough, the day after this all happened, she called me, and she said, um, Mark, uh, I'm looking for something to do. You got anything for me to do? And I said, "Vonnie, I do, but I can't afford you." And she said, oh, I don't need any money. I just got to have something to do. Oh, wow. And she has, yeah. And so she has worked for me uh, for years now. And uh, uh, I mean, all I can tell you is she has done gangbusters for me. I mean, I, it really is phenomenal what somebody with an accounting background can do in your business.
2: Yes. It,
1: yeah. And the other thing uh, that was pretty, pretty cool was about two weeks after Bonnie called me, I got a call from a friend named Basil Drossos, uh, who lived in Paducah, and he had just retired as the number two guy at General Motors. I mean, this guy was the president of Zuzu Motors. He was the wow. president of General Motors, South America, General Motors, Europe. I mean, the guy is absolutely brilliant. And And Basil called me and asked me, he says, you got anything for me to do down there? <laughs> I said, Mason, you got beat to it by Yvonne Apple." And uh, so anyhow, just funny because, you know, I, I love being able to, to deal with people like that and to attract people like that. Another, another good story, um, very similar, was I represented a, a doctor in a car wreck case then. Mm. And because of the injuries that he received, he couldn't work any longer. Uh, so one day he asked me, he said, you got anything I can do down there? And I had an in-house physician for several years. Yeah. He didn't practice medicine, but he could look over cases that we have, talk mm-hmm. about injuries and all this kind of stuff, and uh, and call cases for me and review medical cases. And he did it for me for years and years. And finally, a year or so ago, he moved out to Colorado. Mm-hmm. and uh, But he still... He's still my doctor as far as if I want to send him a case and him look it over, he'll do it every single day for me. So yeah. I, I've, I've, I've had a real knack for having people who want to do things for me.
0: Well, I tell you what, that's an excellent point that you make about, you know, a lot of times people think a law firm is just the lawyers and you may have your office manager and, of course, your paralegals and, and secretaries or legal assistants, but the laws become so specialized. Like you said, you have an in-house doctor or retired doctor because you've got to review your cases or potential cases to see, hey, is there a valid claim here? Because you've got to have facts and you've got to have experts and all of that. Or like even with my office here, we're not a law firm, but we have our own in-house engineer to evaluate things and stuff. And it's the law has gotten so specialized that you don't always have lawyers in the firm. You've got engineers, accountants, uh, land planners. That that help with the practice.
1: No, you're you're exactly right, and it's gotten to the point where, uh, I mean, not only do we use expert witnesses, but uh, in my marketing part, what I which I'll talk to anytime you want to, but it's uh, mm-hmm. I've got uh, people you know in Houston, Texas that are advising me on a daily basis, and, you know, people mm-hmm. in, I mean, all around the country, it's uh, it's a totally different world than what it used to be.
0: Yeah, well, that leads as a perfect segue into my next question. How is law firm operation today different than when you started the firm? Because in 1990, you know, email was not that big of a thing. Now I'm getting like hundreds of emails a day. We have the ability through Zoom meetings. Of course, COVID has had a major impact on how law firm practice has changed. So talk about some of the changes that, uh, that you've seen and how you've dealt with them.
1: Well, that's an interesting question because uh, when I started practicing law in 1973, we had stenographers who took dictation. We had court reporters who wrote in shorthand. We had mimeograph machines for duplication. We had electric typewriters. The first copier I bought was in 1974, and it cost $250. Wow. When I buy a copier now, it's often in the $25,000 range. And so then, you know, you know late in the 70s, or early 80s, IBM computers came out with toaster-like boxes that held floppy disks. And uh, Kentucky did not allow cameras in the courtroom until uh, January of 1982. But in October of 1981, the Attorney General of Kentucky appointed me to prosecute a double homicide uh, that was to be tried in Owensboro, Kentucky, and uh, the circuit judge that tried the case asked special permission of the Chief Justice of Kentucky to allow it to be tried uh, on television. And so the first case that was ever tried uh, in Kentucky on television, I tried it in Owensboro. And uh, that's kind of appropriate because I spent a lot of time over the years on television. And that led that, that very Supreme Court decision led to cameras in the courtroom in Paducah where Comcast put a television studio in our courtroom, and every case I tried uh, was on television from 1982 until 1990. Uh, And it really was kind of interesting because when I left as Conwell's attorney in 1990, I didn't have a single client, and I was worried I might not. But when I hung out my shingle, people stood outside my office building to see me, and it was all because I had so much television time, and everybody knew me. Yeah, uh, It was really funny, too, because my first client uh, that I did not know uh, became one of my very dearest friends, and he is to this day. He paid me $25,000 cash, and I took it home, threw it mm-hmm. on the bed, and told my wife, we're rich. <laughs> because I'd been on the state salary for years, I wasn't used to having a lot of income. It was rolling in. So I decided to build a big swimming pool and I paid cash for it. And when the tax time came around, I had to borrow money from the bank to pay my taxes. I'll never forget it. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so being here, I mean, in, in 1990, when our law firm began, the only advertising was on yellow pages. We wow. got onto television advertising in 1997 when it was frowned upon by other lawyers but I decided the other lawyers weren't paying my bills, and so I did it, and I have kept doing it, and I have absolutely no regrets. Now I have an in-house marketing director, another one in Houston, Texas, website people in in Murray, and advisors all over the country. Uh, and what's really done that too? It's it's opened up uh, state lines where even though we don't have a license to practice in a particular state, it allows us to if somebody calls us and it's a case that we want to take, we can always associate with Mm -hmm. a lawyer in another state in order to do that. And some of my lawyers have licenses in other states anyway. And uh, uh, Joe Rourke has a license in Illinois. Uh, Emily Rourke is uh, gonna get her license in Missouri. Uh, Jared Holt, who is a young Marshall County uh, uh, lawyer, uh, he, he just graduated from U.K., and now when you take a bar exam, there are certain states that if you pass, for example, a Kentucky bar exam, mm-hmm. you, you automatically can get reciprocity in several other states. Oh, and really? so, yeah, I didn't even know that. And, and and so now he's getting ready to get his Tennessee license. So they have a Kentucky license and a Tennessee license. Mm-hmm. So we'll have them all surrounded. But I've got friends in all the states. And so if a case comes up that we want to handle and somebody contacts us, uh, we'll just contact a uh, lawyer and we do all the work. And But the law allows us to use their license. And and if they got it, we have to go to court, we'll go with them. So it's worked out real well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's pretty well covered. Now, I hope.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one thing, too, with um, with COVID-19 is a lot of lawyers are now working from home and a lot of lawyers are able to be very effective in that regard. Talk about that, but also talk about how it's affected the court system, because you know you and I were talking earlier before we started recording that the caseload in a lot of courts is really backed up and it's it's a big issue.
1: It is. It's a real problem. Last March the 10th, Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I had dinner with uh, uh, four friends uh, at the Breakers in Palm Beach. On March the 11th, we got home to the uh, COVID dilemma. I mean, we really, really looked into it then. And on March the 12th, we had everybody in my office. So we've got right at 20 employees. Uh, we we had everybody. We bought uh, computers for them and sent them home and said we're going to work until every, we're going to work from home until everybody is safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, the PI, uh, I, I was I was really concerned. Luckily, we had settled some cases uh, that allowed us to have a cushion to fall back on if things got bad. Mm-hmm. But I was really concerned when when COVID hit Ben that. Uh, people were just going to stay at home and we weren't going to have any PI cases. We weren't going to have any divorces. We weren't going to have any criminal cases. And, uh, sadly, but, uh, people continued to drive and they continued to have car wrecks Damn. for a long time. Nobody got any divorces, nobody divorced. Uh, they just toughed it out. Also, a lot of people refused to, um, um, Uh, I mean, they'd commit crimes and law enforcement would not arrest them unless it was for a very serious crime like a murder or a child molestation. And uh, so as a result of that, we still were able to hold on and actually do very well. We made uh, we made payroll. We didn't get rich, but we didn't lose a single employee. And then they started now arresting people. Uh, They've people. It's unbelievable how many people now are getting divorces. And once again, Uh, people continue to have lots of car wrecks. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, nobody, uh, nobody lost, um, nobody missed a paycheck. Nobody lost, uh, lost a job. I've got great employees and I intend to to have every single one of them until the cows come home. And, uh, but it it really, it, it it was, it it turned out to be an okay year. Now the odd thing about it is, is how it's affected the court system Uh, because, So many of the civil cases are backed up as a result of the fact that the criminal cases are, uh, by law, required to go first on the docket. Mm -hmm. And so they hadn't been able to try any criminal cases. And so as a result, very few criminals are pleading guilty to anything because there's no pressure to make them do that. Mm -hmm. And so the criminal cases are backlogged enormously. Trials are supposed to begin on April the first. The Kentucky Supreme Court just soon uh, ruled down yesterday. So once the criminal cases uh, get to be manageable, then the civil cases will be better. But we've had uh, we've had some very good civil cases uh, while COVID's been going on. The defense counsel knows we're not going to be able to push them to a trial, and so as a result, they've been able to uh, settle their cases for much better money on their part because. Um, our clients don't want to wait around forever to get uh, get the mm. cases settled. So we had to settle too cheap, but we did it obviously with our client's permission.
0: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I know, too, a lot of law firms down in South Florida, particularly the big firms, Well, even my brother, my brother is a lawyer in Nashville at a big firm. And the lawyers are working from home because they can be just as efficient. In some cases, you can't because like in my office, I collaborate with my my colleagues almost every day. Well, every day, heavily. So it'd be kind of hard to correspond through email and stuff and phone when they want like an immediate response. But a lot of lawyers are now working from home. And I think it's going to affect how law firm offices negotiate like their leases for space and stuff. And I know you guys own your building and it's different, but I think it's really going to a lot of this zoom meeting and working from home is really going to continue because people and people too, you could be a lawyer in Kentucky, uh, but you're, you're working from Florida, like what you've done right. on several weeks. Yeah. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, so what are some of your favorite parts of being a lawyer and what are some of your best lawyer stories? Cause I know you've probably got a ton of war stories.
1: I do. And when you and I, uh, talked before, you just told me to, uh, to give you as many as I wanted to. And I got a bunch of them. You just call which ones you don't want. Uh, right. uh, this, this is a, a good story. I, I tried a case where a local physician uh, molested eight uh, little nine-year-old boys and I got a conviction and it was all over the news. This was back in the late 70s. Wow. And uh, I was Conwell's attorney and my uncle Albert Jones was uh, United States attorney at the time. And I was just a kid. I mean, I think I was 26 or... 28 years old. And uh, so it was everywhere. I mean, it was in the Louisville Courier-Journal. It was all over the state, Lexington Herald-Leader, the Duke of And so Uncle Albert opined that uh, if you were to die today, everybody would say, Mark was destined to be president of the United States, but he died too soon. But in all likelihood, you'll live to a ripe old age, and they will say, that old son never lived up to his expectations. <laughs> and that's what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> well, now, shoot. I mean, when I was younger, I was kind of like, I remember as a sophomore in high school, Marshall County, they were like, you know, what was your goal? And I was like, because this was when Bill Clinton came out. And which um, the thing with Clinton, whether it's people like his politics or not, is his charisma. I mean, yeah, sure. and he was an interesting guy. And I was like, yeah, I'd like to be president too. But now it's like, shoot, I don't know if I'd want anything to do with presidents like too stressful and you can't make anybody happy. Yeah. So I'll just stick with being a lawyer and doing the podcast and hanging out. Yeah, no, I, I agree with
1: you. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, let me yeah. tell you about it. All right. You know where my office is and yeah. the way my office furniture used to be situated. I could sit and I could watch people come up the front steps. I mean, the front uh, sidewalk there at the office. Mm. And one day I saw this this old man come up and he had on a pair of bib overalls and he had a, uh, uh, he had a uh, camouflage shirt on underneath his bib overalls. And he had a a cap ducks, unlimited cap on and he came inside and I was thinking to myself, I wonder who he's come in to see. And my receptionist buzzed me and said, this man wants to see. I said, "Uh, Oh, okay. And so, I said, put him in the library. And so I went in the library and I met with this guy. I didn't have an appointment with him or anything. And he told me that uh, he had been charged with uh, rape in Illinois and that uh, he didn't do it. And he wanted me to be his lawyer. And I said, well, "Well, it's going to be very expensive for me to go to Illinois and to represent you on a rape charge. And uh, he said, well, my check will be here on November the 22nd. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I don't take Social Security checks for um, uh, representation in a case. He said, Social Security. Don't you know who I am? I'm Jimmy Joe. I won the Powerball. Thirty three and a half million dollars. Wow. I said, That'll cover. <laughs> and, then, and, and then another time. Jimmy Joe, he, he, wasn't as, he wasn't near as old as he looked, and he was a really nice guy. And um, so, but he had a thing for young girls, I mean, but of age girls, but I mean, you know, like yeah. 20 year olds, and he was like, you know, 60. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one day he came to me and he said, Mark, my fiance and I have broken up, and uh, I, I want you to sue and get back my diamond ring. I want my uh, uh, I I want my uh, uh, my house back, my furniture back. My cat. He bought her a Cadillac uh, uh, Escalade. I mean, he's just spent a ton of money on her. And he bought her a house. Oh yeah, you name it. I mean, everything. And uh, and and like I said, you know, he was an old looking, like sixty or sixty two at the time. And uh, anyhow, so. And when I saw this girl, I I sued her. And I'd never seen her before, and I sued her. And I went into court, and she had this lawyer named Bob Manchester. And uh-huh. so I did. I did voir dire. We got a jury selected, and I sat over there with my client, and uh, and I looked over there at Manchester, and his client was just gorgeous. I mean, like on a scale of one to ten, a, a ten plus. Uh-huh. And so it was obvious the reason he was interested in her, and it was obvious the reason she was interested in him. And so we go to trial, and uh, I gave my opening statement, and uh, I put Jimmy Joe on as a witness, and I'll cross examination, and uh, and and so uh, after uh, for cross, Manchester says, uh, Jimmy Joe, did you do you know Joe Connor? And he said yes. He said, did you tell Joe Connor that you uh, spent a half a million dollars on that girl. And you never got, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, but he said it in the courtroom, but that satisfaction. Mean, yeah. Well, or something. Yeah. The, the, the same. Yeah. But different. And uh, <laughs> he said, no, he said, I did not tell him that. And he said, now Joe Connor is out here in the court and he's in the hallway and he's going to come in and testify to that. Would you tell us what you did tell him? He said, No, I told him I spent $550,000 on her and never got any. And so the jury started hee-hawing, and Judge Clymer was on there, and he was banging a gavel, let us have some order in the courtroom. But it was really, really funny. But anyhow, uh, that was uh, was pretty much that. Um, I had a really cool case one time where a local surgeon came to see me. And um, he told me that he had bought a Prada purse at Sam's you know, Sam's Club
2: yeah.
1: and he paid $600 for it. And he gave it to his sister-in-law who lived in Italy, gave it to her for her 60th birthday. And he said, Mark, I have found out that um, uh, that purse is fake. It's counterfeit. And I've taken the... Uh, I've taken the information out there to uh, Sam's and told him I want a refund because it's counterfeit and they won't give it to me. Mm. And I said, um, he said, and I want my money back. And I said, how do you know it's counterfeit? And he said, I talked to a lawyer for Prada Purses in Italy, and she told me that it's counterfeit. Mm. And uh, so I said, well, you got a number I want to talk to. And so I called this lawyer uh for Prada purses she told me that it was counterfeit and not only that anything that Sam sold that was um you know had Prada's name on it was counterfeit and I said would you put that in writing and she said yes I will so I went back and I met with the doctor again and I told him what I'd learned. and I said um I'd like to file a class action lawsuit against Sam's uh, for selling fake Prada purses And so I filed it right in U.S. District Court there in Paducah, Kentucky, and it became a worldwide national class against Sam's. And I had not – the the case was still really, really hot. Uh, You know, just filed it. They filed an answer real quickly, and I get this call from a lawyer that was a lawyer uh, in the Clinton White House uh, Mm. for the, you know, for the president. And he was now with a big law firm in New York City, and he asked me if I would come to New York City and mediate the case. And I mean, I'm telling you I hadn't filed this case 60 days and Sams wanted to mediate it. So I got my investigator Jim Malone and I told Jim, I said, Jim, I want you to find every single case you can against Sams and Walmart for counterfeiting. And uh, so I went to New York City and I decided that I needed to wear the uh, I made to look as good as I could possibly look, mm-hmm. so I had one Armani suit. I represented Tony Stewart, the NASCAR race driver, and so I put on. He'd given me a NASCAR championship ring, mm-hmm. and uh, for some legal work I'd done for him, and I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But anyhow, so I go up there and I go up to the this. It was the offices on like 55th and Park Avenue, and the mediator was a guy that mediated a baseball strike. Oh, and wow. so I get there. Yeah, it was really pretty cool. And so, uh, and his granddaddy had been the first secretary of the Treasury under Franklin Roosevelt, this lawyer, mm-hmm. was the mediator. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I get there, and the lawyer that uh, represented Sam's um, was also surrounded by two lawyers for, for uh, Sam's, two lawyers for Walmart. They started telling me how weak my case was. Mm-hmm. And I told them that I thought I could get a punitive damage instruction. And uh, I said, because Walmart and Sam's, they've done this many times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the lawyer that used to be in the White House, I pulled out this first case. And I told him, as I recall, it was Tommy Hilfiger. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, that's not going to get you a in instruction. of instruction. Why have a stack of cases, I mean, like inches thick, right. where Sam's and Walmart had done the very same thing. So I kept pulling them out. And I said, I think, I think all these cases, uh, that, that the judge will give us punitive damage instruction. So they started offering money and it never was very much money. And I got kind of offended because I sat there all day long with them mm-hmm. and uh, trying to negotiate in good faith. And they just didn't want to do anything. And, uh, so finally I just told the mediator, I said, this is it. I'm getting out of here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I got up, grabbed all my stuff, walked to the elevator, pushed the button. The next thing I know, the mediator says they got one more thing they want to uh, uh, they want to offer you. Mm-hmm. And so I went back in there and they did, and it was significant. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of money. And yeah. we settled uh, we settled the case. We had a hearing in Paducah in front of Judge Russell. Mm-hmm. and uh, so it was a confidential settlement but nonetheless it was a huge deal uh and and I'm I'm very very proud of that and mm-hmm. lit, and Dr. Mayo and his wife uh they did a hell of a lot better than getting 600 dollars for their purse back and uh, yes sorry yeah. that was fine I wish I could have a case like that every year
0: well did the Jimmy okay. Joe guy with the overalls did he what happened with him and his wife? If you're able to talk about it, because oh, yeah. Yeah, if jury, I remember, he, the case is right on diamond rings, because they always come out about engagement rings and stuff like that. Um, yeah, well, the well, the case on that was uh, I- at
1: least in Kentucky that if it's the fault of the, uh, you know, the person that gave it, uh, I mean that, that 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 got it, and and it was in this instance uh, that you're entitled to have it back. What happened was the uh, uh, the jury found for Jimmy Joe. Uh, but she uh, claims that she already gave back the diamond ring to him. And uh, a- and she did return the uh, uh, the Cadillac Escalade. Uh, I don't know if he got the furniture back the house. I-, I really don't remember, but I mean, he won the case. But yeah. I did tell him, I said, Jimmy Joe, next time you decide you want to get married, I want you to bring a girl by here to see me first and let me give you my <laughs> approval on it.
0: Yeah. well that and also prenups
1: oh yeah yeah no kidding because he never did that he he got married several times and uh never did a prenup yeah <laughs> despite my best advice to him he yeah. was in love uh this is a funny case uh, i represented uh, dr bill wheeler and a uh, businessman Paducah named jack york who mm-hmm. invested uh, three million dollars uh in a case and um uh, in a company and the guy they invested with uh, they they told me all about it and so I filed a lawsuit against him but I wanted to get him when he was in Paducah and I did I got service on him while he was in Paducah so he mm-hmm. came in with his Harvard lawyer, and uh, the guy was just you know smarter than all humans and uh Probably a little so, soggy. yeah yeah and so he came in there we were in front of Judge Johnstone he yeah I'd filed a motion for a summary judgment and he filed a motion for summary judgment. And Judge Johnstone said, well, he says, I'm going to tell you right now, um, Mr. Bryant said, a lot of jurors don't like rich doctors. And he said that the, this guy from Harvard, he said, but don't feel real good about that, because I can tell you, there's nobody down here like Harvard lawyers. <laughs> and he said, he said, I, he said, if this case was in New York City, I suspect that you would beat Mr. Bryant in the courtroom in New York city. But he said, because it's in Paducah, Kentucky, I suspect Mr. Bryant is going to beat you in a courtroom in Paducah, Kentucky. He said, what I suggest you guys do is go in that back room in there and you get this case settled before I enter a motion, enter an order on summary. judgment. And hell we did. We settled it that very day. <laughs> so yeah, that, was, that was just fun. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Tony Stewart mm-hmm. I had the best time with Tony Stewart. He is a great guy. Uh, I can't tell you about the case. I can only tell you that, uh, uh, his manager, uh, uh Paducah fellow named Eddie Jarvis called me one day and said that, uh, smoke had a, a bad legal issue and he needed some help in the worst way. And what I help? well, I never met him before. And I only heard about him. And so, uh, Smoke flew into Paducah, and we, uh, I went out to the airport and picked him up. He had a Citation jet. I went out and picked him up, and he wanted to get something to eat. And so there's this backwoods barbecue out by the mall. And uh, we oh, got yeah. there. It was like Yeah, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning, and we went out to backwoods barbecue, and we went in there, and we were the only people in there. And all of a sudden, the waitress, I noticed she was on her cell phone. And within minutes, there, the place was absolutely packed. And everybody sang, you know, wanted to see smoke. And uh, he was just a really, really good guy, a fun guy. And I'll, I'll never forget, he told me one time, he said, you know, I have managed to hold on to a lot of money. But he said, my plan is to just give it all away. And I thought, well, how mm-hmm. good is that? I mean, he does. He has a very charitable heart.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, I, I helped him. And uh, he was so tickled about it. That he gave me a NASCAR championship ring. He won NASCAR that year, the championship, and he gave mm-hmm. me the ring. It's got my name on the side, Bryant. Mm-hmm. And I was so, so proud of it. And uh, I was building on an addition to my house at the time. It had a plumber on there and it came in and he saw that ring. And he wanted to know what it was. And I told him. And he said, Mark, I just bought a brand new F ford 150 pickup truck that i'll trade you for that ring and i said hell i'm afraid i can't do it and so i was telling smoke about it later and he said man you should have done that i got you another one <laughs> i wish i had too. oh wow yeah yeah it was funny because I, I i still wear that ring on occasion but when i was on the board of trustees at uk um the uh anytime we'd win a championship i'd get a ring and right. so my in the two thousand twelve uh basketball champ national championship, I've got that ring and I'm really, really proud of it, but it's silver. And uh-huh. so the ring that I like the most is the one where Kentucky won the governor's cup and the uh um gator bowl it was like mm. two thousand sixteen, I think. And mm. it's a big gold ring. And I wear it a lot. I mean, I have big hands and so it's it's just kinda kinda fun to wear. But anyhow, uh one day smoke called me and i was up in marion illinois uh preparing to take a deposition and he said uh, mark can you meet me in atlanta and i said when he said like this afternoon yeah i said let me see if i can get a plane he said no i'll send the jet up to pick you up so i drove from marion illinois to Paducah, kentucky which is about an hour and i kid you not when i got to the airport in Paducah, uh the plane was there so wow. it had flown all the way from atlanta to Paducah. it mm-hmm. must have come in hot yeah. but uh yeah. that, that anyhow so i got on the plane kevin shannon went down there with me and uh we had a big time uh talking to smoke about some legal issues and then uh, we watched him qualify in the atlanta speedway uh you know he rode around the track a couple of, he flew around the track a couple mm-hmm. times and uh one of the one of the uh his manager said smoke why don't you take mark for a ride he said hell no and uh i said why not and he said because you're my lawyer i don't anything bad to happen to you." he said these <laughs> things are dangerous so i never got the in one uh and then another funny thing was he he got in some mischief down in australia one time and uh they were not going to let him out of the country and so uh his manager called me and said, Mark, uh, we need your help down here in Australia. And I said, what's that about? And he said, he told me, and uh, it was all over the news. And, uh, but anyhow, uh, he said, can you come down here? I said, when? He said, like, as soon as possible. So I got on there and looked see how the hell I was going to get. And I couldn't. I mean, there's just no way to get to Australia very quick. Right. But as luck would have it, uh, they decided that night that they would let Smoke come back to the United States. So he, he got in his plane and flew back to the United States. And Anyhow, I, I hear from him occasionally, not not as often as I'd like to, but he's a really good guy.
0: Yeah, well, um, that's, that's an interesting story for sure right there. Yeah.
1: Um, something else, uh, being a lawyer – uh, and, and having a, real, a genuine love for people has allowed me to become friends with many governors, congressmen, and United States senators. Mm-hmm. In 2012, Governor Beshear, uh Steve Bashir appointed me to the U.K. Board of Trustees, and I was elected by my peers as a vice chairman of my alma mater before my term ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also selected as a Kentucky delegate to the Democratic National Convention for President Obama. Uh, in 2012, and I really, really enjoyed doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on Dateline NBC twice. Uh, I, I've tried a lot of, I've defended uh, several death penalty murder cases. And uh, I, I defended a guy that uh, allegedly murdered his wife out in uh, Rhode your old neighborhood. And mm-hmm. um, they uh, tried him for the death penalty case, and the case uh, trial lasted for three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I ended up with a hung jury, and uh so my client um, he couldn't afford another um, he he couldn't afford another trial I mean just, those things are enormously expensive I mean, you take up mm-hmm. just a huge amounts of time mm-hmm. uh even with a what was a big fee that his dad paid me i I still feel like I might have made minimum wage at the most, and you just can't do that, and so I couldn't operate couldn't do it second time for free. So he threatened the deputy sheriff, trying to hire somebody uh, uh, who was in jail with him. Uh, he's, uh, he was not able to make bond. He was in jail. Uh, and he, he tried to get a guy to kill the deputy sheriff and investigate the case. And so that cracked the wow. whole case open, and he ended up getting convicted. But I was on Dateline on that. It was an arson case uh, where, his, uh, where his wife was uh, murdered and, and burned. Wow. And so that was, uh, that was on Dateline. And I've had people from around the country send me uh, emails saying, you won't believe this. I was watching television last night and I heard a voice I'll never forget. And of course it was me. And, uh, <laughs> and then the other one, I had a guy named uh, Jared Long, who was a uh, soldier that fell in love with a, with a girl who was married to another soldier who was in Afghanistan. And, uh, he ended up having an affair with this married woman. And, uh, So the prosecutor in the case decided that uh, she was going to get the death penalty on that. And uh, we were in court for a long time. I mean, several years. And long story short, during that time, I found out She did get the judge ordered her out of the case. And another lawyer then came in. And as a result of that, they came off the death, of me and my client cut it, but he's still alive and well. And uh, anyhow, i uh, let's see what else. Uh oh, this is this is cool stuff, Ben. You around when this happened. I got a call you in there in two thousand. Hey Mark, I'm losing. From you. a foreign train development in Tamarow, Illinois.
0: Can you? Yeah, right now you're frozen. Okay, let me see what I can do here. Let's see, you may come back in a second. Am I there? Yeah, you're back now. All right, so start with that one. Um, okay, where I lost you was where that, okay. um, I guess, that soldier. Um, okay, yeah, Jared Long. Okay. I think,
1: yeah, Jared Long. Uh, Jared was a, a young soldier. He had a uh, his girlfriend was a married woman. She was married to a soldier uh, who was fighting over in Afghanistan. And when she, uh, while he was in Afghanistan, she and this guy, Jared Long, lived together. And long story short, when the guy, when her husband came back from Afghanistan, uh, he was killed, uh, oh, wow. shot and killed. And uh, my client was charged with it. And the prosecutor decided they want to give my client the death penalty. And uh, uh, the case went on for years. We had lots and lots of hearings. And long story short, um, I found out that the prosecutor was having an affair with the chief detective in the case. And uh, so I filed a motion to recuse the prosecutor in the case.
2: Mm.
1: And the judge heard it and found, uh, uh, found that she should be recused because of prejudice that was involved mm-hmm. and the appearance of impropriety. And it was all over the news. It was in the Courier-Journal, Hopkinsville, New Era. And uh, so, anyhow, she got out of the case. And when the new prosecutor came in, um, mm-hmm. that prosecutor um, agreed to a plea that was less than the death penalty. And as a result of that, it saved my client's life. So I did a good job, and that ended up on Dateline NBC also. Wow, uh, been uh, another case that you may remember because you were there when this started. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a call one day from a man who told me I had been his lawyer in a divorce case years before. And he told me that he had moved to Tamarow, Illinois, and there'd been a big train derailment mm-hmm. and that uh, uh, they couldn't get any lawyers to come and see him. when I come and see him? And I said, well, let me call you back because I'd never heard of a train derailment case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I did some studying and I thought, well, if I could get, there's a thousand people, if I could get $10,000 a piece out of it out of the railroad, it would be a $10 million case. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I called him back and I said, yeah, I'll come up there and listen. And uh, so I came up, went up there to Tamaro, and there were like eight people. We met in a mobile home and it was snow on the ground. The smell was terrible from the chemicals, from the derailment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I told them, I said, well, we got to have more interest than just eight people. And so they ended up having a, uh, they got a uh, school there in Tamaro and we had a town hall meeting and about 500 people showed up less than mm-hmm. a week later. Wow. So, really long story short, ended up getting a thousand clients, filed a lawsuit against the Canadian National Railroad. And, but before I did that, I call my niece who's a lawyer in baton rouge and the reason i called her was because that is the petrochemical capital of the world i didn't know and that. i figured that somebody in baton rouge had probably handled a train derailment before and my niece karen trevathan told me that i ought to call calvin fayard uh she said he is a great lawyer and a gentleman and one of the few billionaire lawyers. Years in America, and he really is all those things. Just a super good guy. Mm-hmm. He and his partner, Blaine Honeycutt, and I began with that Tamaro case. Uh, then the eight people, then the five hundred at, the tw- at uh, town hall, and then twelve hundred clients. We every time we'd have a hearing against the railroad, we would win, and they would appeal it. And uh, that was the first of many train derailment cases. And we have become some of the biggest plane derailment lawyers in the United States.
0: Wow. Uh, you work live. with that
1: lawyer on the other deals? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. have over every single one of them and been really unbelievably successful because yeah. there are just so few lawyers that know anything about that.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we had, uh, we've we had them in uh, uh, Tamaro in West Point, Kentucky, right outside Louisville, uh, in Rockford, Illinois, uh in Jonestown, Pennsylvania; Maryville, Tennessee; Mount Carbon, West Virginia. I mean, we have tried. We we have not. Uh, we had to go to trial in Knoxville, but all the others have settled out. And we've had thousands of clients that have been evacuated from their homes. Uh, one of them was a um, uh, train derailment in in. Um, Maryville Tennessee which is in the mountains excuse me uh, uh, no this one uh, in Mount Carbon West Virginia it's in the mountains and the snow was nine inches deep it happened at three o'clock in the morning the whole hillside caught on fire people running down the mountains barefooted couldn't get in their cars I mean you couldn't get cars to start it was just the worst mm-hmm. day of the year wow. and the river the Kanawha River uh, caught on fire, and, and it burned all the way across the river, which is like a half a mile wide. And what was funny, I mean, this is just stupid, but the, the railroad denied they set the river on fire. I mean, that's something we had to prove, and obviously we were able to because, I mean, how many times have you ever seen the river on fire? Yeah. It was just this shale oil the thing was carrying it was coming down the hill. The brakes went bad, and uh, yeah. and it flipped over, and we had uh, 1,200 people evacuated. A a case that's kind of in the news right now, Ben, is something that I got involved in four years ago. And a a woman called me uh, from uh, Toronto, Canada, and uh, told me about a minister named Robbie Zacharias that had uh, uh, sexually abused her. And uh, she wanted me to sue him. And I didn't know, you know, I mean, I wanted to see her, I mean, I wanted to meet with her. And so mm-hmm. uh, Emily Rourke and I flew into uh, Washington, D.C., and she flew from Toronto to Washington, and we mm-hmm. met with her, went over the case with her, and uh, it was very touchy because this guy is a big-time television, uh, televangelist out of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so we filed the lawsuit. No, we did not. Oddly enough, we sent a demand letter, and he, uh, Zacharias, hired a lawyer out of, boston massachusetts that sued my client claiming that she was extorting him Mm -hmm. and uh we ended up uh, signing a confidentiality agreement uh but it was uh, we we had mediation in atlanta and uh the case ended successfully for my client and um but there's an article in christianity today magazine just last week where there are other women have now come out well, the same thing and since then Zacharias is dead but um, it was uh, it was a very very interesting case yeah and I had, yeah and, and I had a case in Chicago where uh, we represented 17 women in Chicago or actually it was in Wheaton Illinois against a guy named Bill Gothard and the Institute for Basic life Planning uh, these women accused him of sexual abuse and Emily Rourke and I uh, spent a bunch of time in Chicago over it. Uh, the mm. case ended a couple of years ago, but we've we've done a bunch of that stuff. We had yeah. we had two fifteen year old girls who were molested by their youth minister and a deacon at the church, and one of them got pregnant. And we had a you know we filed a lawsuit over that, and and uh, these things they always sign confidentiality agreements, and that's why I can't tell you about them how they yeah. ended up. But uh, you can imagine that that was a barn burner because it really was. Well,
0: I'd say this uh, about those kind of cases though; those would be the ones that at the end of the day, when you represent someone who's been a victim like that, and you get some type of some type of justice for them, that's got to make you feel good. And that's one reason why you feel proud to be a lawyer is to help people like that.
1: Yeah, when I told you about I mean, how much fun it is to help people, I'll tell you the when we have these trained own the cases and you have a thousand people or more and you're over there giving them checks and they're crying, saying this is going to help my daughter go to college or this is going to help pay for my house. or, or I mean, it really is phenomenal uh, how mm. good it makes me feel when we do that. Yeah. Um, but, I, but, Ben, I'll tell you what, I mean, some of the we got really involved in opioid litigation.
2: And mm. oh, gosh, so that's we still going saying,
1: on. Yeah, it is. But it's, uh, it's about several. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, we represent several counties in Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and down into Florida. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, Kentucky is getting ready to settle. Georgia's working on it. Uh, Tennessee mm-hmm. uh, is working on it. So is Florida, but it, it was very interesting. Just, you know, cause we, we got in a, a plane. Uh, we have, I have a friend that I was on the board of trustees with at UK named Jim Booth. And, uh, Jim was friends, of all the county judges and, and, uh, Fiscal court members in Eastern Kentucky, and he set up meetings. And we flew over there and met with uh, met with various people. Of course, we got people in Western Kentucky. We represent McCracken County and the city of Paducah mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and uh, Ballard County. But anyhow, we we got very very involved in that, and I'm I'm looking forward to giving uh, giving some checks to our municipalities in Paducah here, and hopefully before the end of the year, we'll see. Yeah. Um, Probably the most fact, no doubt, the most uh, exciting case that I've been involved with is uh, one where I work with uh, um, some people. Uh, Originally, I was uh, uh, contacted by a lawyer friend of mine out of Kansas, uh, out of Missouri, out of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, He represented uh, the state of Kansas against the federal government trying to get money back that belongs to people, um, savings, U.S. savings bonds that Uh, uh, people have died and the money doesn't go back to them because the federal government doesn't have any obligation to give the money back to them. So there's $32 billion in the federal treasury that uh, we have sued over and, and, uh, so Mike Moore with uh, uh, the former attorney general of Mississippi who was involved in the tobacco litigation, uh, oh. Joe Rice from South Carolina. There, I mean, there are just a lot of really, really good lawyers uh, that are involved in this. Um, and, and um, uh,
0: That is a heck of an issue, though, because, I mean, even in Florida, I know, I mean, you've got so many, sometimes it goes to the state, but there is like a lost property statute. And sometimes when people have family members die, they really don't know the assets that their family members have. And so like insurance policies are maybe never collected on for life insurance and all that kind of stuff. And I think it goes to the state maybe, or like you yeah. said the savings bonds, okay. I mean, there's just a lot of well, money see, out there that's never collected.
1: Yeah. This is something we could talk about for two days, but that's behind the whole thing is a guy named Brett Milborn uh, who originally uh, got the case for the Secretary of State of Kansas and then he came to me and he I was the second person involved he said can you uh, uh, you think you can get uh, some laws passed in Kentucky about this cheat where we can uh, do this and so not only I get the laws passed but I got the RFP with the state of Kentucky so Brett and I uh, handled that and then we got i I, I was a friend of Mike Moore and Ann. And uh, Mike was in charge of tobacco litigation when he was the Attorney General of, of Mississippi. So I called Mike and we put Mike in on it. And then we started going around. We got in cars, planes. We traveled all over the country, meeting with state treasurers, secretaries of state. Uh, wow. I mean, it was just fun. I and mean, we signed up uh, 14 states that we represent. And, and uh, we passed legislation in a bunch of other states. And so we've gone through the court of claims in Washington DC and we won it there. And at the time of the, that win, it was only like, it was only like 25 billion, but because insurance now it's like, you know, 32, excuse me, because of interest, yeah. uh, it's like 32 billion now, but for Kentucky I went to court and I got a judgment of $212,859,642. Wow. And, uh, so uh, anyhow, I mean, the whole thing's been fantastic. But with six, we won in the court of claims. They, the government appealed it, and uh, we lost on appeal. We took it up to the Supreme Court, uh, and they would not hear it, so we had lost it. But now we passed legislation. We've got legislation in Congress. Uh, we've got, like, 32 United States senators and then bipartisan um, where this money will go back to the state. The state's going to be required to give it back to the people that own it. And if it doesn't, if they can't find who owns it, and they have to make a good faith effort, if they can't find out, the state gets the money under its cheat. Right. And and so, uh, anyhow, it's still going. I mean, we're working on it. Uh, night. I've got a call on it uh, uh, tomorrow after, or, let's see, uh,
0: Monday afternoon. Yeah,
1: wow. It's been a long time in Washington on it, and I'm learning how Washington works and doesn't work.
0: <laughs> yeah. A lot of them yeah. not working. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, you've know, you mentioned that you work with a lot of lawyers, both within the firm, like with Kevin and Emily and, and others, but also you've worked with co-counsel and people on the other side. So you've seen a lot of good lawyers. You've seen a lot of bad lawyers. What, in, what in your mind, what makes a person a great lawyer?
1: I think the most important thing you can have to be a great lawyer are good communication skills. Yep. You've got to have that. You must be articulate. But, you know, you've got to have really good writing skills to be a good lawyer. That's the one thing that I remember about you, Ben, when you worked down there with us. You were a hell of a researcher and an awesome writer. And I have found from years of practicing law that the uh, uh, the ones that graduate at the top of their class are all great writers and researchers. Uh, mm-hmm. So you got to be able to do that. And... Uh, um, the fact that you've been successful is no surprise. Uh, okay. You had a strong, you had a strong desire to do that, but you know, you had a great work ethic and uh, great writing and, and really, you know, I have watched your career and uh, when you went to Miami, I just knew something good was going to happen. And it has, and I'm just people mm-hmm. go for Thank uh, you. The, uh, another thing being, and I think you uh, a willingness to help people, uh, empathy. Uh, oh. And that's not just for money. I mean, you know, we do a lot of stuff at our law firm that we don't do for money. We just do it because we want to help people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll call, I'll put pressure uh, if I can. Uh, not necessarily, I mean, if it, it doesn't have to be legal pressure. It's just, you know, if somebody mm-hmm. needs something, I mean, I like to help. And that's the same way with the people down there in my office mm-hmm. because they don't, you know, like I said, everybody's been down there forever, but those that weren't down there very long. That's one of the reasons if they didn't return phone calls or if they weren't nice to people, because you just got to be. Uh, And and, uh, I think you have to have good listening skills to be be an excellent lawyer. A lot of lawyers advertise they're most aggressive. I don't like that label. Uh, I think assertive is a better label than aggressive. Uh, And one reason is that juries I've learned have a tendency to help people they like. And that includes lawyers. You, mm-hmm. It's important to, to be nice, not to be shrill, not mm-hmm. to be uh, smarter than everybody else, but really just to you know, get your point across and let them see it. Um, I had a client uh, I, you may have heard of him years ago was a guy named Gladman Humbles, And I was crazy about Gladman. Good, good guy. He hired me one time and he gave me a, sh- a T-shirt that said, good lawyers know the law. Great lawyers know the judge, and uh, <laughs> you know that's what I think is really funny when you see all these big law firms that are coming into small communities. Uh, uh, and they act like, "Oh yeah, we're the only ones that really know what we're doing. We are so rich, and we have these huge offices, and we have thousands of lawyers." All this stuff—they don't know any lawyers. They don't know any jurors. Hell, I've tried a hundred cases to jury verdict in my community, and actually across the state. Yeah. And uh, I know jurors. I know judges. And I think it's hugely important uh, I agree. That, that you're able that you that you're able to do that. Um, okay, you, uh, let's see, anything else you want me to hit on that?
0: Sure. Well, no, I, I agree with those qualities too. I, I think because um, in my role as in-house lawyer, I work not only with lawyers, but I work with outside counsel. So there are certain things I look for for my outside counsel. And I think your point about being – um, a nice person, you know, cordial, good to work with. To me, that's very, very important because a lot of times people don't like lawyers in general, but it's like, if I'm having to work with somebody, I want to enjoy who I'm working with. Or if I was a client, I would want to enjoy or quote, love my lawyer because you want to have confidence there. But I think the other thing too, about, uh, being diligent, like returning phone calls, there's a lot of common sense, I think it's very important to be a lawyer, like returning phone calls, meeting deadlines, um, being someone that people feel confident in. And that's stuff that you can be the smartest person in the world. But I think a lot of lawyers, if you have common sense, that carries you a long way.
1: So I agree. In fact, it's interesting you'd say that some of the pointers you're making, because uh, I was invited by the uh, Dean of the law school at the university of Kentucky to speak to the graduating class a couple of years ago. And I did. And some of the pointers I made are what you're talking about. It's uh, I told him, I said, here's some rules of basic training. I've passed on to my own children and my young lawyers. As my mother taught me be nice. Honey draws more flies than vinegar. Number two, your word is your bond and your most important asset. Be a straight shooter, not a bluffer. This is not a card game. It takes a lifetime to build a good reputation and it only takes seconds to run it
0: right i agree especially with the world we have now with social media and things like that you know if you come across as a bad person or whatever it's all out on facebook and twitter and oh yeah all that well let me uh we talked a little bit about marketing but i want i kind of want to hit back on that because one of the critical components of any business is marketing and you've always been at the forefront of that with law firm and it wasn't just the TV ads talk about the importance of marketing for, for Bryant law center and how you've been so successful with it.
1: Okay. Uh, My old friend, Joe Grace often told me if you don't toot your own horn, ain't nobody else going to toot it for Mm you. It goes against everything that my mother and dad uh, taught me as a child about the importance of being humble, but Joe Grace was right. And my wife still impresses on me how important it is to remain humble. Uh, But so was Ted Turner, the mouth of the South, right when he often said, early to bed, early to rise, work like hell and advertise. That is my mantra. Everybody in our farm works like crazy returns phone calls and we advertise to beat the band or the competition. Mm. Here's a tip I have for you, though. If you advertise, don't cut back when things get bad. I mean, last year was a tough year for everybody. And I was surprised at how many lawyers cut back on their advertising, uh, the television station, how many uh, you know car dealers they cut back, they didn't have cars to sell. And so we doubled down in 2020 and we increased our ad budget. And because so many people had quit TV advertising, we got twice as much advertising for our expenditures. Mm -hmm. And because of Zoom and the Internet, Mm -hmm. we now hire experts out of office for marketing, and they attend all of our meetings, just like it was occurring in person. When I began practicing law in the 70s, you got clients strictly by reputation locally.
0: But Mm -hmm. a Kentucky
1: case ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court in the late 1970s. The case was Shapiro versus the Kentucky Bar Association. It went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supremes found that restricting lawyer advertising was a First Amendment violation of the right to free speech. That changed everything in the legal world. A a lawyer no longer had to have a big local reputation to have a big practice. And unlike times past, you didn't have to hold public office office to get clients to come to you. Mm-hmm. So advertising really has changed everything, Ben. It's uh, pretty shocking. It's very expensive. It's like having—I uh, I laughingly say—our our television and uh, newspaper in Paducah is owned by the Paxson family, and mm-hmm. I say is uh, that—that's my other law partner.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting though because, like, without the t- I remember back in the day it was ads from your your office and Charlie Saladino's office. Yep. Yeah. And then. Really, you guys were, I guess, the only law firms in town that really did any TV advertising. And I don't know what the law firms do now as far as advertising, as far as as on TV, but I know you you guys still are at the forefront of that. But now you've got your Morgan & Morgans that are coming into different areas. And I mean, they advertise a lot, but it's also on social media too. Um, And I think that any business, it's like you've got to be on social media. And like, if I go to the Bryant, Uh, Law Center website, there is an icon that pops up that there's a lady that says, hey, if you need to chat, you you can type in and correspond. And that's what kind of people expect now. So I think uh, that's very important.
1: that's funny Ben because that lady actually is Christina and she works for me and oh, her name is Christina. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it really is. And she is, just, I mean, that's her, that's her picture. She is gorgeous and nice. And uh, we have so many mass tort cases that she is, uh, she is our case coordinator on the mass torts. And, I mean, she gets 10 million calls a week uh, over people with problems and she tries to help everybody out.
0: Yeah. Well, y'all do a real good job with that. And like you said, I mean, You've got to advertise or else people aren't going to know who you are unless like, like you said, back in the day, you'd know people from your colleagues or if you went to school like in Paducah or, you know, big church and stuff like that. But if you're somebody like me who comes from Kentucky to Miami, you don't know anybody. You got to do the networking and advertising. So, well, let me ask you this. All right. You've been a top lawyer in both criminal defense and in personal injury. And people often come to you when they have a problem. What are some basic tips that people should follow when they're involved in a car wreck or facing a criminal matter besides calling you immediately? Uh, yeah, I got you. To gotta gotta do, you got to kind of do some things before you call the lawyer. Yeah, you can mess exactly. some things up.
1: Well, Ben, let me tell you, uh, we get that question a lot about what to do in case there's a car wreck. The first thing I tell you to do is get to a place of safety. Mm-hmm. Next thing. Everybody's got a cell phone of some sort. It's got a camera on it. Take photographs of everything that you see that was involved with the wreck. Uh, Because really, a photo is worth a thousand words. And so get all the pictures you can get. Get the names and addresses of the people who saw the wreck. And make some notes about what they tell you. Here's something that I think is really important. You know, we're we're all bred to act like everything is okay. Mm-hmm. But don't act tough when you've been in a car wreck. If they come to you and they got an ambulance to take you to the hospital, unless you just know you're not hurt, you need to hop in that ambulance and go to the hospital.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh if you uh aren't hurt at the scene, but a couple of days later you start hurting, and in in soft tissue injury cases that happens a lot. You know, the Chamber of Commerce and all these people are always complaining about uh a whiplash, making like that's nothing to whiplash. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're sitting still and you're getting hit by a car at 60 miles an hour and that pops your spinal cord, it may not hurt right then, but it can Mm. really, really hurt in a couple of days. Please go to the doctor. Mm. And when the doctor, he takes a history and when he asks you, how are you doing? Don't tell him I'm fine. That's what everybody always does. But Mm. don't tell him the truth. Tell him, oh, I'm hurting. You know, whatever the truth is, just... Tell him because the the way these cases become of any value at all is by what the doctor has to say about you. And so Mm -hmm. you need to give him your history because people routinely won't lie about their medical history, except if they're trying to act tough like they're really not hurting. So don't do that. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next thing you should do is call a good lawyer. Uh, Find out from the trial lawyers association in your state who a good lawyer is uh and uh I'll give them a buzz or better yet just call me one eight 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 mark bryant I am available all over the country for car wreck cases and I do them all over the country
0: well and one thing too um by by someone calling you if it's something that you can't handle you can always provide a referral and to sure. be honest re- referrals you're getting an informed referral so there you go yeah
1: no i, I I bet you I'm the biggest referral source in Paducah, Kentucky. I mean, people call down there for everything, not just what I do. They just call <laughs> for advice, and I'm glad to give it to them. And, uh, you know, it's funny uh, how many people call for a relative or something that's living out of state. Do I know a divorce lawyer and such and such? And I won't, but hell, I don't, I don't mind spending the time to find somebody that, you know, to help them out. And so I'll give them two or three people to refer them to. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, it's worked out well. And, and uh, then the other case, uh, you, you ask about tips for a criminal case. And I really know an awful lot about that. I've tried more than 100 cases to jury verdict, um, many of them criminal. I do know that jurors, are just like the rest of us, they do have a tendency to help people they like. So you be on your best behavior if you get in front of the jury and be sure your lawyer is nice too. But before that happens, when the police come knocking at your door, they're not coming because they're trying to help you or to be your friend. My best advice to you is do not talk to the police at all. Either say nothing or tell them that you won't talk without a lawyer. Do not let them in your house without a search warrant. Uh, they talk about this knock and talk. Don't let them in there. They'll knock on your door and say, hey, do you mind if I talk to you? Uh, you can come outside if you want, I, I'm, but I tell you, not even talk to them. I'm, but if you've got to talk, and it's hard to say, no, I'm not going to talk to you, but that's what you need to get ingrained. Then, you know, don't let them in your house without a search warrant. If you have a number to get into your cell phone, do not give it to them. Now, if you don't have a number on it, Uh, this is what's weird. They can require you to to use your finger and press the button that Mm -hmm. opens it up. If you have a fingerprint ID on there to open your phone. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a fingerprint ID, they cannot make you tell them the number to get in the phone. And Tara Swanson, uh, who is one of my lawyers, and she is a smart lawyer, she told me recently that if the police were to stop you to turn your cell phone off entirely, because once you turn it off uh, and it comes back on, if they turn it on, they can't get in if there's a number on there. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't have to give them the number. Uh, and, and the next thing is, um, if, you, if you get into trouble, call a good defense lawyer. My opinion is that uh, former prosecutors are, are excellent defense lawyers because that's the way I came up. But you don't have to be. I mean, Emily Rourke in my office is a fabulous uh, criminal defense attorney, and she never mm-hmm. prosecuted a single person in her life. But if it's a death penalty murder case and money isn't a problem, mm-hmm. you can call me because I really like doing those, but I can't <laughs> do them cheap. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. okay. Well, your your experience level justifies that. I mean, you know,
1: yeah, 45 years you, of experience. Been as, uh, that's funny you'd say that because I don't do this for experience anymore I pretty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've already done that <laughs>
0: well, it's just it is what it is you know, and lawyers that have more experience have higher rates. I know when I was in private practice every year my law my rate would go up you know fifteen twenty dollars an hour and when I left the firm I was like at four fifteen an hour, but I had some equity partners who you know had 20 or 15, 20 years more experience and they were $550 an hour, $600 an hour. But yeah. With that, with experience comes wisdom. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, maybe.
1: Yeah.
0: So, well, that's, that's interesting because of first off, Rodney and I hopefully won't have any criminal issues, but those are the things that when you think of lawyers, usually you think of, okay, a criminal issue or uh, an injury. And it's kind of nice for people to know what they should do before they even call the lawyer, because you can do things or say things that can mess up your whole case um, before the lawyer is even involved. True, so, true. So, well, let me ask this then. Um, the, sh- the theme for this show this month is called Love Your Lawyer Month. And I don't know if I know anyone who loves lawyers more than you because you have a family full of lawyers. Matter of fact, you have two children. You've mentioned David and Jennifer are both lawyers. Um, What's it like having a family full of lawyers?
1: Ben, as you can imagine, is never boring. We have so (laughs) much, we really do. We have so much in common and enjoy so many of the same things. That When we get together, there is seldom a quiet or a dull moment. Um, My uncle was a lawyer. He encouraged me to be a lawyer. I did and then my sister child, my niece became a lawyer. My wife and I have two children and a daughter-in-law who are lawyers. I just love lawyers, especially my own. Uh, And I can't say enough good about my wife, a lawyer's wife named Sue. Uh, She has put up with a lot over the years and really seldom complains about it. More than once I have given her short notice that anywhere from five to 25 people are coming over after work. I don't do that very often. Um, but occasionally when you've got some big case coming on and something just happens out of clear blue, we've got to meet. And so I'll call her and tell her and she'll get everything ready. And she really, she is a great wife that understands my profession and has been very understanding over the years.
2: Mm -hmm. And she's raised
1: three fantastic children while I was out prosecuting criminals or fighting windmills as a plaintiff's attorney. Our children have turned out great. And now we have five grandchildren we have a ball with and Sue is putting her stamp on those as best she can. The tub- toughest problem Sue has is her two, no, her many decades long effort to make me perfect. And that's not working out very well for either one of us, but she keeps trying. <laughs> she keeps trying.
0: We may need to have Sue on for a segment of why she loves a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um yeah, it's interesting. Um, my brother is also a lawyer, so at, at our generation, we've got lawyers. And well, let me ask you this: um, you know, what do you tell your grandkids? Are are you going to tell the grandkids to be a lawyer? Are you going to tell them to not be a lawyer?
1: No, I would encourage them to be. But like for example, my granddaughter Caroline, she just got a the high the highest grade. She's twelve. She's fourteen. Got uh-huh. the highest grade you can get on. a... A high school entrance exam and uh uh she she's got a four point uh mm-hmm. she is really really smart her dad's an engineer and her mother was a judge mm-hmm. and uh so she's already talking about going to to medical school Yeah, and uh so that, that is that is quite an honor if that's what she does that's what i want her to do mm-hmm. my, my grandson boone um he is 12 uh he is a real mathematician. I mean, that guy can teach math at 12. He is just unbelievably smart.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: don't, have, I don't have that skill. That's nothing that I've ever been able to do. Mm-hmm. So that came from the engineering side uh, of his family. Yeah. And uh, I, I do know this. When he was about five, he told Jennifer, "says Mama, when I get big, I'm going to go to Duke to law school. Well, don't tell him that. Don't let him go there. Well, let me tell you, she was on the highway and she pulled over and stopped the car and turned around and said, Boone, you can go to UK or you can go to Harvard. I don't want to hear another thing about Duke. And uh, (laughs) so, anyhow, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love being a lawyer and I, I think their personalities are well suited to it, but if they got something else they want to do more power to them.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting time by Kentucky and Duke. Um, I actually was I was dead set. I was going to go to Kentucky for law school because grew up a big time UK basketball fan, which we'll get to UK a little bit more here. And I mean, never really cared for Louisville, but I ended up going to Louisville because Louisville just gave me such such a big scholarship. I couldn't turn it down. And they were pretty close uh, in that. And I never thought I would go to Louisville. But um, anyway, the money talked. But the thing about it is, is I was kind of like, well, I can go to Louisville and still be a Kentucky fan. But my second year of law school, Rick Pitino got hired as the coach. So I felt like, all right, well, I'm kind of bringing some Kentucky in. So it was a little bit easier. Yeah. But yeah. I, I couldn't go to Duke. I'm sorry. I, I draw the line there. At least no, I know what you mean.
2: Yeah, I'm with you.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, we talked about the qualities that you think are important for a person to be a great lawyer. What's your advice on someone who's considering being a lawyer?
1: Uh, When I was in my first year of law school, Mario Puzo wrote in, in the beginning pages of The Godfather, he said this, a lawyer can steal more money with a briefcase than 100 men with guns. That is the absolute wrong reason to want to become a lawyer. Yep. Nor is, nor is Warren Zevon's fantastic song, Send Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Dad, Get Me Out of This. But that really is one of my very favorite songs. And that's one of my very favorite books.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: here's my advice. Becoming a lawyer is a great opportunity to help others. You can further the good of the community and the rule of law. There are so many areas of law you can get involved in. From trying lawsuits if you're outgoing, to real estate development like Ben if you're really smart, to checking titles to property if you don't want to be in front of a jury.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Being a lawyer is being part of learned professions. It lends itself to prestige and reputation. Income can be significant. Lawyers are among the highest paid professionals. If you make good grades love to read, to constantly work hard, and to help people, this profession is definitely the one for you. If you don't, you need to try something else. Yeah.
0: No, I agree with that. I, I guess one of my colleagues um, a few years ago, he said, you know what, and being a lawyer is kind of like you're doing homework every day yeah. in school, and you've got to get an A on it um you can't get a c you definitely can't get an f so it's it's very uh, time demanding and because you've got a lot of research and it's getting more and more complicated but i will say that the law you look at almost anything a lawyer's involved like building a town like what we're doing here in va yeah. i mean there are lawyers involved in that from selling the land i'm dealing with the county lawyers on building roads or for schools you've got The school board has their lawyer. You've got personal injury lawyers or criminal defense lawyers. We've got NASA up here. You've got lawyers dealing with that. I mean, anything you think of, there's a lawyer involved. Sports teams have lawyers. So there's an opportunity to do a little bit of everything as a lawyer. But I will tell people uh, on your first quote, if I was dead on, that somebody should not be a lawyer just because they think they're going to make a lot of money. Because you can, but there are a lot of lawyers that don't. And you got to enjoy the area that you're in.
1: No, you're, you're exactly right, band.
0: Well, let's, let me ask you this, then. You've been in practice for a long time, and with wisdom, with experience comes wisdom. What would the lawyer Mark Bryant of 2021 tell the Mark Bryant that was in law school, the one that was a commonwealth attorney in the late 70s and 80s, and now the Mark, and the Mark Bryant that started Bryant Law Center in 1990?
1: Ben, I've, I've broken that down into three parts. And the first thing is, <clears throat> what would I tell Mark Bryan in law school back in the 70s? And i tell him, decide where you want to practice based upon family decisions as opposed to a desire to make money. Yeah. If it's family, go to Paducah or a small town. If it's money, do what Joe Kennedy once said. And that was, if you want to make money, you've got to go where the money is. The last many years, I've had the best of both worlds. We raised our children, uh, a fifth generation Paducah, three of them, wow. uh, in Paducah. But we figured out how to get big cases in cities where the money is. And that, that has been a real key to my success. The next thing, what would uh, I say in 2020 to Mark Bryant as the Commonwealth attorney back in the 70s and, and 80s? Uh, don't stay too long listen to your wife and your friends and get out after you've tried every kind of case imaginable. 16 years is too long. Sue asked me what I was going to do when I grew up and she was right. I wanted to open the Dairy Queen as I didn't like lawyers during that period of my life. 40 is not too old to hang out a shingle. People want to help you, but you have to ask them for their help. Mm -hmm. So that's my advice I do then. And then the next uh, part of that question Mm -hmm. was, What would would I tell Mark Bryan in 1990 when he started the firm? I would tell him to trust yourself and your family. Don't waste so much time defending criminal cases. Go right after the insurance companies and the big corporations that take advantage of the weak and the helpless. And always remember what Sir Edmund Burke once said, all that is necessary for the triumph of the forces of evil in this world is for enough good people to do nothing.
0: Yeah. Excellent quotes there. And it's reasons like that. You know, the, the lawyers want to help people and because there are a lot of situations where people try to get taken advantage of and they need a lawyer to help them to not be in that situation. And that's why people should love their lawyers. And that's why we have Love Your Lawyer Month here. I
1: think that's a great idea. I like yeah. it. Yeah.
0: So well, I appreciate you coming on. We're not done yet, uh, but we are done with the legal portion of it. And, folks, I mean, I've been speaking with my friend Mark Bryant. Uh, like I mentioned, he is the founder of the Bryant Law Center in Paducah, Kentucky. The website is BryantPSC.com. And Mark has uh, consistently been ranked as one of the top lawyers in the, the state of Kentucky and the, uh, the country when it comes to personal injury law and criminal defense. And he's an overall good guy, which is why I asked him to be on the show.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. So now we're going to go into the portion of the show that I like to call the living the dream questions to see if Mark Bryant is truly living the dream, which I know the answer to that question is going to be yes. So, Mark, you ready to get started here? we got a series Uh, of uh, rapid fire questions. Ben, I'm ready. All right. First question. What's your favorite Seinfeld episode?
1: Shrinkage or faking?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. George Costanza. Great answer. All right. Next question. What's your favorite John Belushi movie?
1: Animal House.
0: Absolutely. Let me ask this. That's one of my favorite movies. What was it like when that movie came out? Because, I mean, you were in that generation where you saw Saturday Night Live uh, when it first started and the Belushi mania and all of that, but Animal House is like an iconic movie. So, what was it like when that movie it, came out? It, it
1: was everybody talked about it. I mean, I hadn't been out of school very long when that thing came out, and the really funny thing was the Eat Me float because everybody talked about that, and you, you just didn't see stuff like that. Yeah. And it was it was funny and fun, and uh, I still enjoy it. I, if I see that thing on, it's kind of like my cousin Benny. If it's on TV, no matter where it is, I'll just start watching it.
0: Yeah. No, it's a, it's a classic. I'll make sure I watch it a couple of times every year. Matter of fact, in my house, I have the John Belushi college poster up in the house. It's in my little garage for Rodney. That's funny. Yeah. That's neat. All right. Well, great answer with Animal House. All right. Next question. What's your favorite Chris Farley movie? Uh, Tommy Boy. Absolutely. We get that answer consistently. You know, Tommy Boy is now 25 years old, which makes me feel not as young.
1: <laughs> You're still a baby, though, Ben. <laughs> I know.
0: What a movie, though. All right. Next question. What's your favorite Rodney Dangerfield movie?
1: I love Back to School. Well,
0: I see? I don't know it. if you can see this um, that photo behind me right there with my yes. thumb. Yeah. That's the movie poster for Rodney Dangerfield, That's Back good. to School.
1: You know, Ben, I remember – when, when we were working together in 2002 mm. and you told me that story about Rodney Dangerfield and, yep. uh, and I'm telling you, I saw the pictures and that was just the most amazing story. How you bought that. You had two tickets to Cardinals and you swapped for one ticket. You had four yeah. and you swapped it for one buying on home yeah. plate. And, uh, you sat there, and all those people were wearing white coats and waiting on you. And you told me that uh, you you heard this voice that you thought you had heard before. I mean, this story really. It, I have told a lot of people this story, Ben, <laughs> and, uh, and and you heard this voice, and you turn around and looked, and there was Rodney Dangerfield, and, and I love Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, I do. He too. was the best. But anyhow, when you showed me the pictures, and that's how I convince everybody it's the truth. Because when you tell that story, I remember you told Rodney, you said, "I live a." Uh, halfway between uh possum trot and monkey's eyebrow and you yep. sent him that t-shirt and he sent you he sent you out there for spring break that mm-hmm. was a hell of a story man it's one of my favorite stories even now well, one of you, my goals <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah one I of my know.
0: goals is to finish a movie script called from the outhouse to the penthouse and the whole premise of the story is kind of a small town guy which would be me you meet this celebrity which obviously rodney has gone but you know, they kind of wanted to go to Miami and start a club, kind of like that. So kind of my story, but it's kind of like Forrest Gump going to South Beach. But I think it's a very funny little story, and you, of course, embellish things. Oh, stuff. that's a good but, story,
1: though.
0: Of course, the Bulldog Rodney is named after Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So good answer there. All right, next question. What's a better college theme movie? Animal House, Revenge of the Nerds, or Old School? Uh, Animal House. Absolutely. You know, I sometimes get people to vote for old school, but to me, it's Animal House. I mean, that movie was so iconic. So, plus I love John Belushi. All right. Next question. Uh, What's your favorite Bill Murray movie?
1: Uh, Caddyshack. I I like that. And I I like Ghostbusters, too.
0: Yep. Oh, I love them, too. I also love the movie Stripes. I don't know if you remember that, where he went to the Army.
1: No, I don't think I saw that one.
0: Yeah. You know what was funny with Caddyshack is um, I did a presentation to the Florida bar because um, based on ethics, based on the movie Caddyshack. Really? Got, yeah, I got rave reviews. I, I applied the ethics rules to scenes in Caddyshack. I may, I may have to do one for the McCracken County bar. as Oh, come on. I'll,
1: I'll get you. I'll get you. Tell me when you're coming.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right. Next question. Um, what's your, what are your three favorite movies not starring John Belushi, Chris Farley, Rodney Dangerfield, or Bill Murray?
1: Uh, that, I, I like The Godfather, mm. Braveheart, and To Kill it's, a Mockingbird.
0: Those are good movies.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
0: You know, now there are so many new movies that come out on, like, Netflix and Hulu and all these things. It's kind of hard for me to keep up with all the movies. No.
1: Did, uh, no, I know. And I saw a new app the other day that you can get for free, and it tells you everything it's streaming. If you, Like, mm-hmm. for example. If you like Benny Hill, the comedian, you can mm-hmm. put in Benny Hill. It tells you where he's playing right now.
0: and uh, Oh, really? Just No matter what it is, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, no, those are excellent answers. All right, what's the next question? What's a better lawyer-based TV show? L.A. Law, Matlock, Terry Mason, Boston Legal with William Shatner as Denny Crane, or Suits with Harvey Specter?
1: I'll tell you, I really like Denny Crane. Oh, right. yes, yes, fantastic. Yeah, Boston Legal. Yeah, Denny what Crank. a great
0: movie or yeah. show!
1: Yeah, no kid.
0: I love William Shatner. And you know what was yeah. funny talking about that movie script, um, idea because I, when I write the script, I, I write with actors who I think will play those characters. And I had a character for my grandfather, and I wrote it as if William Shatner would be the grandfather. Oh, that's cool,
1: <laughs> that's funny. That's a great that answer. Funny. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Next question. Um, uh, what are your three favorite uh, rock bands?
1: Uh my three favorite rock bands: Rolling Stones, Beatles, and the Beach Boys, followed up by the Eagles.
0: The Eagles. So staying in the seventies, in your generation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hell, yeah, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, and still do. In fact, hell, I hung out with Mike, uh, uh, love with the Beach Boys. First time I ever saw them. I love music. Mm -hmm. And the first time I ever saw the Beach Boys, Sue and I went up to Carbondale, Illinois, and saw them. And um, he was in the early 80s. And I really felt like I could have just dropped out and just been a camp follower. I mean, it was just (laughs) fantastic. So a few years ago, the Beach Boys were at the Four Rivers, uh, Carson Four Rivers Center there in Paducah. And uh, so we got invited back be back behind the stage with a band and so i got to hang out with mike love and i just really liked him because ever since i was a little kid i mean they were mm. a huge deal and uh so during the concert i had real good seats and old mike love he looked one time he looked up at me and gave me the he you know, like the hook em horn
0: sign or something mm. it was just funny and fun but it, i had a good time i love i love all those groups i love music yeah you know in rolling stones i mean nick jagger they were still touring at the time of covid let me tell you, I went to see them in Nashville two years ago. Soon I went down there
1: with some friends and hung out, and it was it was fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in that whole football stadium, that place was packed. And what's really funny, I'm not a good dancer, Ben, but he has. They had these huge jumbotron televisions, uh-huh. and Mick Jagger come out there and dance. And you know, I mean, I had a little wine in me, and hell, I could dance. <laughs> when I could see the dance moves, I could dance. Not like Jagger, but I tried hard. It was fun.
0: Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, who are your three favorite other musical performers?
1: Um, my other favorite musical performers: Van Morrison, Frank mm-hmm. Sinatra, Jimmy Buffett. I like Travis Tritt, George Strait, and Randy Travis too.
0: Oh wow! You know Travis Tritt actually he performed in um, Vieira. We uh, one of our properties that we conveyed to. It's supposed to be a school site, and the school board's not ready to build a middle school yet, so. There's a company that they'll do events and stuff. Matter of fact, they brought in Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, but yeah. Travis Tritt came in. He was on a tour with Charlie Daniels. Wow. And so I got to meet uh, Travis Tritt at the show. And he's friends with like one of my friends who they do that Barnstable Brown party for the yeah. Kentucky Derby. Yeah. sure. So my friend Dale Barnstable lives down here in Fort Lauderdale. And it was kind of funny because you meet him and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm friends with Dale Barnstable. And he's like, oh, that's a really cool guy. And it's, Kind of cool to have some of the, something in common with Travis. Yeah. But he was really laid back and pretty cool. His daughter and he, son are in music now.
1: He's got a lot of talent. I really do like him.
0: Yeah, those are good answers. All right, back to Paducah here. What are uh, your favorite Paducah traditions or landmarks?
1: Well, I love going to Cynthia's Restaurant. Uh, those uh-huh. The people that uh, that own it and built it are friends of mine, Cindy and Bill Gardner. Uh-huh. Uh, I love going to Doe's uh, to eat. Uh, the owner of Doe's is a friend of mine. And then the third place that my kids and grandkids uh, like to go to, and I do too, is uh, Driver's International Grocery, which is by the courthouse. It's, oh, it a little is. Old, it's a little old grocery, and they make homemade sandwiches. And uh, so, anyhow, I've always had a good time going there. Driver's yeah. International Grocery.
0: And Doe's, that's over by the Market House Theater in downtown, right? Yeah,
1: yeah it's right there on 2nd Street. Yeah, 2nd okay. Broadway.
0: Now, I yeah. know Cynthia's restaurant's been around for many years.
1: They have. Yeah. In fact, it's really interesting, ben, when I have like lawyers come in taking depositions, like from New York or Chicago, they want to know where should we eat? And I send them in there to Cynthia's. And yeah. they come back and say, man, there's nothing better in New York than here. And Bill, you know, he, he the guy that owns it, he, he, he started, he was in North Miami, he was in Miami, he was in San Francisco. And he finally came home and built that restaurant. And it is tried and true. It's fabulous.
0: Wow. And, you know, when people come into, to paducah to visit i mean they don't want to necessarily eat the chains because you can eat at the texas roadhouse yeah. in louisville or lexington or wherever but so that's cool to have three locals as your yeah. answer
1: yeah and, and you know kirchhoff's is a is a good place it's a good restaurant oh yeah and max's uh, brick oven cafe it's a good local home place
0: yeah it is all that's downtown. downtown so what about uh, some of your favorite paducah traditions because we have many
1: uh, well, I, I take when I was a kid is when they built that Barclay Monument out there at 28th and Jefferson Street, and my daddy, uh, who was in the military, whenever Barclay would come to Paducah, um, he would uh, he would drive Vice President Barclay around. So when I was a little mm. kid, I was around Alvin Barclay some uh, through my dad, and so I've always liked that. Um, the Four River Center has become really the, oh, yeah. the look of Paducah I mean it is a fabulous place that uh, uh, the, the community built it the state gave 21 million and told us to raise the rest of it and there are a bunch of us that did it a lot of people uh, gave money solicited money and so uh, it is one of the top uh, music venues in the country right there and
2: yeah
1: uh, I'm real proud of it so I like that and then uh, uh, another, um, uh, thing that, that I like, uh, uh, in, in Paducah is, uh, Starnes barbecue. Oh that's, yes. That, that's Oh yes. Tradition. Yeah. Our kids, when they come home, they, they just, they want to go to Starns.
0: Yep. I guess the main one is still over there by uh, noble park, right? Yeah, sure. Yep. Joe Clifton drive, I think. Yep. You got it. Well, that's good. All right. Um, you could have lunch with three people other than me and your immediate family, who would you pick? And it can be someone alive or dead.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I I came up with it two ways. Uh, Dead people, I would like to have uh, uh, lunch with uh, uh, Jack Kennedy, Sean Connery, and Winston Churchill. Uh, Alive people, uh, President Obama, George Strait, and Freddie Couples, the golfer.
0: Oh, wow. Fred Couples. Yeah. I haven't Is he p- still playing on the, the senior tour? He's on
1: the senior tour. He's just a cool dude. I mean, he really is. I wish I had his swing. But if he did, I probably wouldn't be a lawyer.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, Paducah. I mean, we produced um, Russ Cochran and Kenny Perry. Yeah, great guys. Yeah, so, they've done really well, too. Well, those are some interesting picks right there. Quite the discussion mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. All right. Um, they were vacation spots. Okay,
1: uh, my wife and I have had a home in Vero Beach for 25 years, um, but we have friends that live in Provence, uh, Italy. And, I mean, uh, 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 France, and uh, also down in Palm Beach, and so we go to Europe uh, every couple of years and tour over there uh, on trains. And one time, Sue was a uh, she was uh, in a Princess rally and. She and our, our friend Debbie Smith, they rode from Paris to Saint-Tropez through the French Alps racing. There were 200 mm. women racing uh, <laughs> through the French Alps. And uh, so they raced through the Alps, 997 miles, almost 1,000 miles. But uh, and while the husbands, we, we get on the eyes, we drive two or three hours, and they'd get to the next stop, and we'd stay all day. We had a ball. Anyhow, we, we have hung out with them in, in Europe a lot. And I love Paris, but I love Europe. Yeah. Um, the uh, the other place that we have taken our children since the uh, late 80s is Jamaica. And we have a home that we've been going to since 1991. Mm-hmm. Some friends of ours, we didn't know them at the time, but but we, they're friends now. They're from um, Alexandria, Virginia, and they own Uh, six homes on the south coast of jamaica and i mean where where they are is so remote it's called bluefields bay and uh we're taking our kids um and our grandkids there next month it's a the house we're staying at is a huge house and it's staffed and uh, there'll be 13 of us there'll be eight adults and five grandchildren and uh we're going to go down there and stay for a week and swim and eat and drink fine wine and have a good time doing it it'll be fun
0: those are excellent answers. I've actually never been to Jamaica, but I had a, a friend and former secretary of mine that was in Jamaica. Her mom is like, she's like in the government down there, I think is a, a consulate or something. But, you know, a lot of big resorts down there and a lot of good vacation spots in Jamaica.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty place too. It's, it's, it's as pretty as Hawaii and a hell of a lot closer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. More vacation time. You got it. Yeah. All right, next question. Uh, who are your favorite sports teams? The University of Kentucky Wildcats is by
1: far my favorite sports team. Uh, I like the, you know, the, the Tennessee Titans because they're close to home. I, I, when I was a child, I liked St. Louis Cardinals, but my son David became such a huge Cubs fan. Because back when he was little, and he's about your age, yeah. that's when all that stuff started getting on uh, cable TV. On WG, and he yeah. watched every game, and I'd watch him with him. And then we started traveling to Chicago because you can fly from Paducah to Chicago real easily. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we have become Cub fans over there. So those are my teams.
0: Well, I tell you, um, I mean, I'm just like you and, and David there where uh, I grew up a Cardinal fan. I am a, still a Cardinal fan. That's my favorite baseball team. But – when David and I were growing up, that's when you had Harry Carey and Steve Stone on WGN. So yeah. we, the games that we got in Paducah were either Cub games on WGN or Braves games on TBS. And so I would follow all those Cub teams and stuff. And I went to yeah. Wigley Field, I guess it was a couple of years ago, the first time I'd been. And I did exactly what y'all did. I fly from Paducah to Chicago, and I stayed downtown and went to the Cub-Cardinal games, and I had a great time.
1: Yeah. No, I know what you mean, Ben. That's fine.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. All right, so who are your favorite U.K. basketball players since U.K. basketball is such an important thing within the state of Kentucky?
1: Well, when I went to school, uh, Dan Issel uh, played there, and I didn't miss a game. I mean, we went to every single game, uh, every home game. And, I mean, it was just amazing watching the guy play. And back then, you see, freshmen didn't play. They had a freshman team, Mm -hmm. and they didn't have three-pointers. And Issel is still the leading scorer – the UK has ever had only playing three years. Yeah. I was on a plane from, you well, I don't know where I was, but I, but it really wasn't, you know, it was right before COVID. I got off a plane and this huge tall guy got off in front of me, uh, in Louisville. And mm-hmm. I may have been in Orlando, uh, flying to Louisville. Yeah, that was it. And anyhow, so when we got off, I saw it was Dan Issel. And I went up and talked to him, uh, I knew Dan. He didn't remember me, but I knew mm-hmm. him because uh, he was, uh, I was an SAE at U.K., and he had a bunch of friends that were SAEs at U.K., mm-hmm. and so I went up and talked to him. He was just as nice as you'd expect him to be. He told me he was trying to figure out how to bring a pro basketball team to, uh, to Louisville, Yeah. And, and then the other one, when I was on the board at U.K., uh, uh, Anthony Davis uh, played up there, and, I mean, that guy is just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. But there's so many good basketball players at UK that, uh, you know, we sit here and talk about that all day long. But those oh, two. I know. Yeah.
0: You know, the thing that's interesting about Dan Essel is, I mean, he was six nine and he could hit those outside jumpers. So if they had yeah. a three point line, he would be making them. And I know in the NBA, I mean, he was a big time scorer for that. And, you know, now it's like all your big guys are, they have to be outside shooters if they want a chance in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. One of my favorites, of course, is Jamal Mashburn. Uh, He was my first guest on the podcast, but he was kind of like Dan Issel could go inside and outside. And and Davis, my gosh, he's just had a fantastic career in the NBA, so hope he can keep that going. Let me ask you this. Um, You know, we got a big Wildcat game today against Florida, so, of course, that'll have happened by the time the audience hears this. But what's your take on the one-and-done system with Calipari? Do you like it? Because a lot of people have been on him this year, but yet I'm kind of like, well, if you go back to the, the day, you didn't rely on freshmen. So it's, he was bound to have some a bad. – I'm not going to say a bad team. I'm going to say a team that takes longer to develop.
1: The thing that I like the least about it is, I mean, being a Wildcat fan since I was a child, I mean, I lay in bed with my mother and dad listening to basketball games. I bet I was two years old, probably before then. But, I mean, I still – have real memories of listening to Kentucky basketball as a child. And, hell, I knew everybody's name, how they were doing, everything. And now you don't really know anybody because they're not there long enough. to. That's my chief complaint about it.
0: That's with me, too. I mean, I understand from a player's standpoint, like Anthony Davis. He's there for a year. He's going to be the number one pick in the draft. He's going to make a guaranteed $3 million a year, of course. It's kind of hard to blame the guy for going in that case. But some of the guys that leave and they might be picked in the first round or they're picked in the second round, like Derek Anderson, who uh, used to play at UK, he said, hey, if you're going for the money, if you've been poor most of your life, what's being poor for another six months if you wait yeah. and improve your stock and get a, a better contract? But I agree with you. I think one of the appeals with Kentucky basketball, too, is the fans, you have a bond with the players. And it takes a while to – have that bond. So like when I w- grew up, it was Melvin Turpin and Kenny Walker and Sam Bowie and then, you know, Mashburn and all those teams. You had more of a bond with the guys then than you do now. And uh, Well,
1: you know, it's, it, this is kind of interesting. When I was on the board of UK, I spent some time, not a considerable amount, but some time with Calipari. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really, really like him. And uh, one day uh, we were down to the SEC tournament and, uh, Nashville, and I was standing outside the hotel talking to him. And I said, you know, coach, the older I get, the more re- I realize how much luck you have to have to get to be an NCAA champion. He yeah. said, yeah, you got to have a lot of luck and you don't want to tick off the referees. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and the thing with Calipari is if you think about his tenure at UK, it's pretty amazing what he has been able to do because he's kind of in a scenario where he's like, you got to recruit the best players and because otherwise the Kentucky fans will get on him, And that's what people had a problem with Tubby toward the end of his turn. Yeah. Was not getting the blue chip guys, but you got to have the glue guys, you know, your Darius Millers and stuff like that too. So you got to recruit the top guys, but it's just the nature of the system now where a lot of the top guys feel, Hey, well, I'm there for a year and then I'm going to go and play in the NBA. So, you know, that's just kind of the way the system is. And I think they need to have some changes in the rules, but I have no problem with the players getting a stipend because, you know, as well as I do, I mean, when you're a, a football player or a basketball player at Kentucky or a big time school, or even a, a smaller school like Murray state, you don't have the time to have a part-time job. You don't have time to get the extra money to go out on dates or for a car or new clothes. And I don't think it's, I think, the players should be getting, given a stipend to cover that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that.
0: So, interesting. That can be a discussion for a whole other day for a very yeah. long podcast.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: All right, uh, next question. Uh, if you could play, uh, pick anyone to play you in a movie, who would you pick?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. I have had so many people tell me that we look alike that I would pick Kurt Russell. That's a good
0: pick. Yes, uh,
1: he he really. I mean, used to when we were both young. I mean, we kind of did look like one another, so he'd be pretty good at it, I think.
0: That's a very good pick. I was I was thinking you might say William Shatner for, <laughs> for Denny Crane, <laughs> Kurt Russell. That's a, that's a good pick right there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good answer. All right. Favorite stand-up comedian?
1: Undoubtedly, Rodney Dangerfield. Oh man, the funniest human ever.
0: Uh, all right. Yeah. See that answer alone aside from all the other great answers you've given that (laughs) answer alone means you're living the dream or
1: or does that mean you're just very very smart (laughs) man
0: well that too no doubt (laughs) one of the things with rodney that um that i liked is he told jokes a lot of the comedians now they just get up and tell stories and it's not always that funny i'm like you know, the art of telling jokes like that Rod mm. Dangerfield had and Jonathan Winters and um, Johnny Carson and all that, sometimes it's kind of lost. I, I, the Seinfelds do good. I love Jeff Foxworthy, though. He's pretty. Yeah, I he can is relate
1: sometimes. to him. He's funny.
0: All right. Um, next question. We're down to the last two. Who's your favorite late-night talk show host of all time? Johnny Carson. Like, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Have I, I like
1: David. Dave, I like David Letterman.
0: More. David Letterman. Yeah. All right. He was on the list. Yeah. The other yeah, people I had as candidates were Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, Joan Rivers, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, or other. But we're going with David Letterman.
1: Yeah, I like him a lot. He's a smart guy. I like his show that he has on there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's on HBO, and uh, he just—I uh, just like him. Yeah. He kind
0: of went with the Santa Claus look.
1: Yeah, he did, didn't he?
0: All right. And final question, favorite celebrities that you've met?
1: Well, um, my top one would be uh, uh, Tony Stewart because I spent a lot of time with him. Yeah. When I was a child, I met Arnold Palmer. Uh, as uh, an adult, I've spent a little time around Jack Nicklaus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I played in a golf tournament uh, with Tiger Woods right in front of me, and I met Tiger and I talked to him. And I'll never forget, not only I have a picture of him and my boys and me, But Tiger blessed my putter. He said he didn't think it looked like I was taking very good care of it. So he (laughs) he blessed my putter. Uh, Kenny Perry and Russ Cochran are both personal friends of mine. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Rivers uh, sang Secret Agent Man, a lot of really good songs. But uh, I spent a bunch of time with Johnny Rivers, including one night after he performed at the Executive Inn, uh, the Sheriff, uh, Howard Walker Jr.
2: Oh, uh, I liked him.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh, he brought Johnny out to Stacy's, which a friend of mine owned, and uh, so I, the band, got up there and I sang Johnny Rivers' music to Johnny Rivers. That was just like one of the highlights of my whole career. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, I sang in Vegas uh, at, at the Desert Inn one night, and man, I just absolutely loved that. Uh, I met Gordon Lightfoot, uh, Dolly Parton. Uh, uh tom t hall play golf with tom t hall
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh met mike love and that's as far as celebrities that's it
0: golly I, you might need to be the host of this show rather than me <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, that's a lot of hard work what you're doing ben it's not easy yeah well, fact, it's funny. I got, I got invited, uh, through my marketing. Uh, they wanted me to start doing a podcast and hell. So I started listening to yours and right. I thought that is a hell of a lot of hard work. I've already got enough going on. I'm not going to do that.
0: Yeah. Cause that is work. Yeah. I like it though. It's kind of the way oh, I you're awesome. At it.
1: You're excellent yeah. at it, but you gotta have a real, uh, you gotta have a real love for it to do it because it takes a lot of time. And, um, uh, getting you know getting guests on and uh, i just i'm really honored that you asked me to be on here so
0: yeah well i'm glad that you're on you know we have been talking about having you on before and then covid hit and then i came up with this idea of love your lawyer month i'm like it's perfect for mark all right thanks so well mark i really appreciate you coming on the show and um also for being a good friend and mentor for these many years and folks um As you know, Mark has a lot of experience and a lot of legal issues. And if he can be an asset to you, definitely reach out to him at the Bryant Law Center. That website, again, is www.bryantpsc.com. And so thank you so much for being on the show. To our audience, we hope you guys enjoyed our first episode of Love Your Lawyer Month. And hopefully after this episode, you like lawyers a little bit better now than you did before. So thanks so much for being on the show, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us online at benandrodney.com and follow us on Instagram at benwilsonmiami.